need two sugars. Hey, friendo. It's sugar. Call it. Call it. I'm going decaf. What the motherfuck is up, internets? Welcome to another episode of That's the Fucking Trailer. I am Mr. Royland. Over to my left camera right is... Durden Godfrey. Why do you God and why do you free? Hey, guys, we're welcome back. We missed you guys. Did you miss them? Because I missed them. <laughs> we have three episodes remaining this season, including this one. Uh, have you visited our site yet? Because we have all the episodes backlogged on there, nicely categorized for you. All of the segments, all of the interviews, everything, everything at ttft.live. You should check it out, like, now. And uh, support the show. How can they do that, Dave? You can find all the links to support the show at ttft.live. There are two ways to support. You can either do Patreon if you'd like to, uh, if you'd like to contribute on like a monthly reoccurring basis. If a one-time payment works better for you, you can use PayPal. Well, we accept both uh with open arms and you could also support our sponsor which in turn supports us which reminds me can somebody roll that roll that beautiful bean footage if you want to feel like a superhero or a super villain check out aimbot energy they are locally produced right here in jacksonville florida locally owned and operated they uh, produce a, a healthy alternative to energy drinks that doesn't give you the sluggish feeling when it wears off. You mean the crash? The crash. The oh. three o'clock crash. It is 100% natural. They use a perfect balance of nootropic to enhance your focus and multitasking, your memory and your critical thinking, your blood flow, because that is actually important. Does it help serotonin? It does help the serotonin, and I would I would use it specifically just for that if that was the only nootropic in uh, Aimba Energy. Aimba has zero sugars, zero calories for those of you that care about that kind of stuff. It comes in four flavors, blue raspberry, fruit punch, green apple, and straw kiwi. This stuff is so powerful that they recommend if you're a new user of Aimbot, you only use half the bottle because a full bottle will kick your ass. Right now with our discount code, you can get a four pack for under 10 bucks, you can get 40, which is regularly $100, for $85. So go right now to aimbotenergy.com slash discount slash TTFT. Support Aimbot Energy, local business, support our show, independent. We're all happy and you are the best version of yourself. Aimbot Energy. David, why roll your bot when you can aim your bot? Thank you very much to Aimbot for supporting this episode. You can also support this show by subscribing. Numbers get us closer to monetization. Every single one of you counts towards our 1,000 subscribers. Thank you very much to everybody that has subscribed and is watching. What are we doing today, Mr. Royal? Well, listen here. Listen, there's no city for young boys, but there's definitely no country for old men. Yes, the Coen Brothers masterpiece, No Country for Old Men, we will be discussing today. And coming up in the episode, we will be talking to two stars from the film, Legends of Hollywood, Barry Corbin and Beth Grant. 
So stick around for Cast Crew U. That'll be coming up in a few segments. But first, how about that elevator pitch? And guys, guess what? You're in luck today. For the elevator pitch, we went all the way to a icon. You guys know all his films. We quote them. We talk about them all the time. We don't ask how. Let's just say, thank goodness, the cameo. We were able to get Tarantino himself. And by Tarantino himself, I mean the great gifted Tarantino Jones. Take it away, sir. The booth. The booth. Hey, hey, wait, wait, what's going on, man? We live, man. It's your boy Tino Anthrax live in the building. Tarantino, you know what I mean? I want to thank my boys for letting me on the show one time, you know, TTFT. Y'all make sure y'all hit that subscribe button. And like and all that good stuff, you know. No country for old men. All right, so really in the beginning, one of the things that is really crazy is Llewellyn filing all that money after seeing all those dead bodies. Now, what is a person going to do, a normal person going to do once they find all that type of money and seeing dead bodies? You get the hell out of there. For some reason, after even making it out of that situation, he decides to go home, talk to his girl, and, and out of the blue, for some reason, get some water to go back out there and do what? What are you finna go do, man? Save a life? Get the hell out of here. Next thing I want to talk about is Carla Jean Moss, which was Llewellyn Moss's wife, played by Kelly McDonald. I'm going to tell you about her character to me. She was a little bit too nosy, a little bit asking too many questions, should I say. Llewellyn, where'd you get the bag from? What are you going to do? Where are we going? Why? Shut up and do what the hell I tell you sometimes, and maybe we'll get up out of this situation alive, which they didn't. As we move on through the movie, um, we got Carla Jean's mother, played by Beth Grant. She talks too damn much, too, so now I see where the daughter gets it from. I got the cancers. Well, if you'd have shut your damn mouth, maybe none of that stuff would have flew in it. And I got the cancer. Anton Chagall, played by Javier Burdem. I need you to step out of the car, sir. Let me tell you. This about to be one of the best villains, got to be one of the best villains that I have seen in a while. Most people use their guns, their knives, but he had some shit that just, that's all you heard. So it's like now when I go outside, you know, and I hear that noise, I'm like, did something just pass my damn ear? I don't know. I'd be kind of worried, but ain't nobody looking for me, so I'm good. He really didn't have no regards to life, if you want to act, you know, ask me. Didn't mean nothing. It wasn't about the money to him. It was just the principle. When somebody like him has a job to do, they do it. You want to be careful who you get involved with. Tommy Lee Jones, he plays Sheriff Ed Thompson Bell. He seems a little disconnected to me, and maybe that's because he's been on the job for so long, over 25 years. If you guys can recall, um, in the intro monologue of the film, he discussed about him being uh, Sheriff at the same time as his daddy, and that made his dad real proud. To me, at this point, I think he's seen so much, and because this is something he's never seen before, maybe he's just disconnected and don't believe that it's real, as he says that in the movie. Deputy Wendell, who's played by Garrett Dillahunt, I like his character because he played it well. He played a character to me just you know, didn't have. He was just new to the job. Maybe he didn't spend a lot of time in training. Because some of the questions he asked in there was just kind of weird. Oh, Sheriff! I think Woody Harrison did a great job. I just felt like they didn't give him his respect due from White Man Can't Jump. Meaning that his character should have lasted a little bit longer than that. He should have been able to kill somebody or something like that. My worst scenes, I would say, or the dumbest, should I say, 
all involved pretty much Llewellyn. First Llewellyn going back to scene. What the hell was you thinking, man? Llewellyn, I, I just don't get that part of it. I, you almost deserve to die for what you did on that one. Llewellyn was very dumb. Again, who finds that type of money and don't look in the bag to see if there's a tracker? I don't care if that's 1932 or whatever the case may be. Look in the damn bag and see if it's a tracker in there. Come on, man. Who the hell you thought you was going to stop with that damn gun? You took the tracker out and put it on the desk. That's what he did. Instead of just putting it on the desk, you had five minutes before when you put it on the desk. You waited, saw this man, turn the light off in the hallway. When did he come back and then wait till you shoot and then you shoot? By that time, I would have had done took that money, took that tracker, put it on there, threw that shit out the suit, the suitcase out the window, jumped out, and then I would have been gone with the suitcase. When he did all that shooting through the door, I would have been gone. My favorite scenes, um, of course, all um, involve Shigur. Uh, I love his interaction with the old man, of course. It almost was like a game in a game. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from? Friendo? I think the old man also was really confused, Also, obviously, you know, because he didn't know what the guy really wanted. Uh, Shigura was just in there effing with his head. My One of my other favorite scenes would be Shigura's killing of the three Mexicans in the hotel because they were very, uh, very much in the wrong place at the wrong time. They had nothing to do with the situation, but that shows how much this guy was a stone cold killer. And it didn't matter who you were. So that can happen in real life. You're just in the wrong hotel room. So keep your strap. So to end this off, I would like to say the movie was overall a great movie. I will say a little too long, maybe by like 10 minutes, they could have cut a few things out. This movie could have easily been called WWABMND. That's if Llewellyn as a character was a black man and that would stand up. Um, what would a bitch ass nigga do? No, it would stand for what would a black man not do? Because he would not have took his black ass back out there to that scene once he found that money. He would not have gave a damn about anything else going on about standing. And he damn sure wouldn't have stayed in that cheap ass hotel. You probably would have caught that nigga based on him standing some shit that they know he couldn't afford two weeks ago. So all I'm saying, what a black man would not have done is carry his black ass back out there to that scene. He would have got on the plane and flew his ass out the country because we know our luck ain't that goddamn good. No country for this man. No country for this black man. And all I want to say, that's the fucking trailer. In the process of getting this paper, we gon' light up. We gon' light up. It's going down Movie land. All right. Guys. Hey, thanks, Tarantino. And don't forget... Cast me your next fucking movie, or it's over. Yes, over. <laughs> All right, we do our research. All right, Dave, tell them what we mean when we do our research. And speaking of that, guys, hey, there's a store out there. Tell them where they can go to get these awesome fucking shirts now. Oh, shit, yeah. Get that right at ttft.live and hit shop in the menu. It'll take you right to all the awesome products that you're seeing on the screen now. All right, we do our research, and we did a hell of a lot of research for this one, so strap in. No Country for Old Men is included in the 1001 movies you must see before you die, compiled by the writer, producer, critic Steven Schneider. It is also in the official top 250 narrative feature films on Letterboxd. This was written and directed by the world famous or infamous Coen Brothers. It is based on the novel by Cormac McCarthy, starring Harvey Yerbadem, Tommy Lee Jones, Josh Brolin. <laughs> 
The cinematography is by Roger Deakins, who is a frequent collaborator with the Coen brothers. He also shot Barton Fink, the Hudsucker Proxy, which apparently during the shooting of that, he made an impression on Tib Robbins because that same year he shot the Shawshank Redemption. And then the next year, 1995, he shot Dead Man Walking, which was directed by Tim Robbins. He also shot for the Coen Brothers Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, A Serious Man, True Grit, and Hail Caesar. He's pretty much the official eyes of the Coen Brothers. The only films he didn't shoot were their first three, being Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. Those were actually shot by Barry Sonnenfeld, who, for those that don't know, went on to be the famous director who did The Addams Family. Uh, all of them, uh, Get Shorty franchise and the original Men in Black trilogy. What'd you call me? Huh? <laughs> and Roger also didn't shoot a few in recent history, Burn After Reading, Inside Llewellyn Davis, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Some of the other films that Roger Deacon shot outside of the Coen Brothers universe, because this guy is a legend, so I had to bring these up. He did 1984, Courage Under Fire, The Hurricane, A Beautiful Mind, The Village, Jarhead, Skyfall, and the recently critically acclaimed 1917, which had some of the most insane, does that one-shot movie with, with the, the whole war movie, looks like it was one take from beginning to end. He did that, yeah. No Country was edited by the Coen brothers. They've edited a majority of their films under the pseudonym Roderick James. They came up with a single-person alter ego due to guild membership rules forbidding two co-credited editors on the same film. Roderick James was nominated for an Oscar for Fargo, as well as No Country for Old Men, but has never taken home the award. The Academy Awards also has strict rules against nominating more than one person per film as director, but they make exceptions when the co-directors are an established duo. This only happened twice in the history of the awards with Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise winning for West Side Story in 1961 and the Coen brothers winning for No Country for Old Men. So what you're telling me is we're never gonna get an award for doing stuff together. Not unless we are an established duo by the system. Good thing we got 20 years of history. <laughs> the release date for No Country for Old Men is November 21st, 2007. Other films that came out around that time were Disney's Enchanted, Hitman, The Mist, Alex Jones' Endgame. Where's my Alex Jones fans at? Frog's gay. A movie came out <laughs> that I have absolutely never heard of that has the strangest, most 2007-est cast of who's who ever. It's called American Breakdown. Uh, but I've also seen it listed as Stories USA, depending on where you look online. Yeah. 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 I'd watch that one night. Mm-hmm. In Paris. Oh, <laughs> the budget and income for No Country for Old Men. It had uh, was shot for twenty five million. Um, and, and compare that to Death to Smoochie we did last episode. I think it was five hundred million. Where the fuck did the other twenty million go? I don't know. And here's the crazy <laughs> thing. It it uh, so. Uh, let me get back to that. The okay, that'll be in the facts. That'll be in the facts. There you go. There's something. There's a lot of money went to something crazy. Uh, for No Country for Old Men. Yeah, blow. Um, close. It starts with a B. Mm, Bitcoin. It brought in <laughs> it brought in a little over $1 million on its opening weekend with a present worldwide gross of $171,627,166. It runs at two hours and two minutes, which until their recently released Ballad of Buster Scruggs, No Country was the longest running Coen Brothers movie and the first to exceed two hours. 
I told you there is a lot of research this time. Oh, you did it, kid. While most productions run through anywhere from 700,000 to 1 million feet of film, the Coen brothers shot just 250,000 feet due to the film's tight production. It was edited using Final Cut Pro. Right. <laughs> uh, well, this was 2000 and, well, 2007. It was a little bit different then. They, they went downhill. It was the first film edited using Final Cut Pro to win an Oscar. Windows Movie Maker much? Probably the last film mm -hmm. to win an Oscar. Too. Yeah. It was filmed in Texas and New Mexico from May 23rd, 2006 to August 16th, 2006. Most of the movie was shot in Las Vegas, New Mexico. That's Las Vegas, New Mexico, not Las Vegas, Nevada. And Tommy Lee Jones convinced the Coen brothers to film some scenes on location in West Texas. And speaking of locations, when Llewellyn Moss crossed the border into Mexico, he became the first character in a Coen brothers movie to set foot outside of the United States. All their films have taken place within this country's borders. And hey, when I took this job, it was to protect you against enemies, foreign and domestic, unless it's Coen brothers. Yes. There you go. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're going outside of the country, this is no country for the Coen Brothers. Oops. Hey, All hey, right. great. How about you connect some shit? Oh Lord. Well, guys, it's time for you now. Close your eyes and get on your knees. Which I always found weird because now that I'm older, you want me to pray or you want to rape me? Like, how about I want to see my religion? But with that being said, guys, it's time for the LOC locking it down. The Lord of Connections. Turn that cross upside down and put it on the wall in the mirror, and it's right back side up. Guys, this week what we're talking about is the connections. But you got to say Jesus Christ three times. No, you don't. Candyman five times. Watch what happened. And so, with that being said, guys, no country for old men. Connections. Let's jump right into it, Dave. It's not going to be long, but it's going to be hard. That's what she said. That's all oh. right. I got some follow-ups on the connections. Follow-ups are FUs because they both start the same way all right resident evil what did i do there where did i get that at resident evil help me you don't play video games so how the fuck would you know ah the connection would be resident evil in the scene where llewellyn is running away it's one of the first off let's start here lassie will never be used again fuck lassie that dog that ran off land and jumped 30 feet into the water as if that shit like a fucking dolphin dove into the water but with that being said oh okay yeah okay you're talking was the dog's name Lassie? Or no, 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 I'm just saying like the original Lassie. Okay. Him, Mr. Ed, all of them oh, are fucked yeah, up. Yeah. Now, Stuart Little, this this animal, they didn't even have a fucking name because he's dead now. He was a Terminator. Oh, yeah, he was. So he jumps in the fucking river and he's, I guess, dog paddling. See what I did there? <laughs> he's dog paddling. And then right when he comes out, I see old boy, I see Llewellyn down there trying to get the water out of the gun because it's out the Glock. And he's like, I said, oh, no, they're finna go Resident Evil. The motherfucking dog runs and jumps up at him right before. He's like, cow, 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 cow. I was like, that took me back to my Resident Evil days. You know what? I, I can appreciate that connection because I played Resident Evil just enough to know no, that the demon dogs. Demon dogs. Or, oh, look at that. Almost you went supernatural on me. The movie, the, 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 the show Supernatural. Okay. Winchester. Accidentally. Hellhound. 100% accidental. I've never seen a single second of that show. Stop talking to me. All right. <clears throat> oh, guys, here it comes. Uh, it's not fun if we can't have Heath Ledger connection to the dark. It's not a Heath Ledger connection, but it's definitely a Dark Knight connection. All right, guys, if you notice, one of the central things of this film, and I know you should have known this, and if you did not know this, I'm writing you one demerit. One of the things in this film that really I loved from the get-go was the was the coin flip. That is a classic theme, theme from the, the villain Two-Face. Now, one deeper connection, which is why I am the Lord of Connections, David. Could you remind me 
Didn't someone play Two-Face before? Tommy Lee Jones. Ew! See what I just did there. So there we go, guys. Who That's... also played in Men in Black. Who? Oh. With Josh Brolin. Right. Played the younger version of Tommy Lee Jones. What are you doing here? I'm just... Uh, hey, so I if you want to play that game, he also started out in Men, in Men in Black. He has a thing for Mexicans. Who, Tommy Lee Jones? Yeah. I'll say you why. Because he he found, he went looking for some Mexicans at the start of Men in Black at the beginning of the film, and then in this film he's still looking for Mexicans, and he has a slur against me. I know it's true because I'm the Lord of Connections. He makes uh, he makes a living in both films out of deporting illegals. Right, and when I keep saying Mexicans, I'm speaking in my Tommy Lee Jones sir voice here. So that's it's not Mr. <laughs> Royal. Mr. Royal loves all. Well, the yellow, black, and white they are precious in my sight. T loves the love the people of the world. All right, and with that being said, guys, all right, Cinco de Mayo. Oh, this is gonna fuck you up. Were you in a car accident? Were you in a car accident? Were you in a car accident? No, bitch. Were you in a car accident? And he was in the movie Road Trip. His car got fucked up. He has the nerve to ask this motherfucker, was he in a car accident? That's our guy. Who? Hey, kick a rock, shake a rock to fuck the big black girl in Road Trip. He, he, That's him. He's on. Oh, no. oh, motherfucker. Don't make me. No. Don't make me. Do, you want to you want to bet? That's him. He's like, hey, man, were you in an accident? Were you an accident? That's him. I'm telling you, that's him. St- fucker. I would, I, would, I would recognize that nose no matter how that, much it is. Tarantino. No, I'm right. I'm not going to look for it, but I'm telling you that I'm right. He's on the bridge. He's, he's like, I'll pay you for that shirt. Okay, right, I'll get you. Can the I get guy this? that, the, one of those three guys? Yes. No. Fucker. No. No, no you know. 100% No, no not. you're wrong. You're wrong. No. You're wrong. All right, we'll see. No, we, we won't see. We're doing this live. We're doing. We're doing this now. Everything that's happening now is happening now. I'm the Lord of Connection. I got Prince Prince Paul over here. Can't even. Jesus Christ, I am shameless plug. IMDb. We love you. We've trashed you all season. But if you give us a job, we'll turn that frown upside down. You're talking about the new guy. Yes. Yep. Nope. Yep. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 And if I'm wrong, I'm not going to be wrong. So who gives a fuck? All right. All right. We're talking. Okay. All right, so we are we're live, and we're the new guy, DJ Qualls. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right, okay, 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 okay. Don't worry. You were, you were so concerned about getting something to eat, you're about to get a full plate of crow. <laughs> DJ Qualls, right? Yeah, you saw it, but you're not seeing you're not seeing that name in No Country for Old Men, and you're not that, that's no not that's not what he was credited as. He's only ever been credited as one thing. I'm pretty sure he stopped acting a few years ago. I'm right. I'm yeah. right. I'm I'm real. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm real. I'm real. Hey, he's gonna come back. Hey, fuck that, guys. I'm right. Okay, and last but not least, with that being said, here, uh, the I reference it to. Uh, Really, sometimes because these sheriffs didn't didn't wear a gun. I didn't wear a gun. Uh, what I found very uh, connect the connection to to that was is that Andy Griffith didn't wear a gun, and I they were said that, that he kind of modeled this character after that. When a man carries a gun all the time, the respect he thinks he's getting might might really be fear. What what I found even f- funnier was that even after Andy Griffith was a sheriff just like him, he be- went on to do Matlock, which is still trying to figure out stuff and investigate, and that to the end, which is what Sheriff Ed Tom Bell did. Yeah, hey. the aging detective. Other than that one uncredited scene for DJ Qualls, guys, those are your connections, and I am Lord. You should not pray to me. Just pay me.
Uh, I, have a, I have a few connections that I stumbled across in my research. If you don't, if you don't mind, if the if the anti everybody got a plug, nobody want to put it in. Anti Lord of connections can come in. I want to connect it to real life. Hmm. In the novel that the film is based on, Sheriff Bell talks about the shooting and killing of a federal judge in San Antonio. The story was set in 1980, referring to a real-life incident that took place in 1979 where Judge John Howard Wood was shot and killed in San Antonio by Texas freelance contract killer Charles Harrelson. And here's where it gets weird. Charles Harrelson is the father of Woody Harrelson, who stars in the film as Carson Wells, the contract killer. Now, that is fucked up. Yeah. We talked about that a lot when I watched it. Uh, we're connected to There Will Be Blood while shooting in Marfa, Texas. Paul Thomas Anderson's film There Will Be Blood was also shooting nearby. A wide landscape shot had to be rescheduled due to a gigantic cloud of dark smoke floating into view from pyrotechnics testing on the neighboring production, setting an oil derrick ablaze. Filming was resumed on No Country the next day when the smoke finally cleared. A year and a half later, both films were the leading contenders at the Academy Awards. Go figure. And to the Titanic... This was the second Best Picture Academy Award winner to be produced, written, directed, and edited by the same person, or in this case, the brothers. Mm -hmm. The first was James Cameron with the Titanic. And of course, the other Coen Brothers movie, Fargo. It's easy to make that connection. The case that held the money in No Country for Old Men is the same exact case used in Fargo, used for the same exact purpose. And my last one that I found was Psycho. You got Llewellyn Moss on the lamb with stolen money, much like the lead uh, character in Psycho. Hides out in the in the hotel in a in a far off abandoned place, just like Psycho. Anton Chigurh murders the hotel guest through the shower curtain, like the classic Psycho scene. The framing of Carson Wells climbing the hotel staircase resembles the shot of De- Detective Milton Arbogast climbing the stairs at the Bates home before he is murdered. Nobody should be at the Bates home. Kathy Bates, misery. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, here we go. It's time for one of your favorite segments. All my Hulkamaniacs out there, pull open that shirt and hear me out. This is where we discuss our visions of what the film could have been, our theories, our our law and order, whatever you want to call it. So this is what I like to call this. My hear me out is the life of Sam Gerard. I, I, I liken this to this. To me, Tommy Lee Jones, his character, Sheriff Bill, has after the whole after his whole movie career that he's been in from u.s marshals to the fugitive to to anything where he's uh, pretty much seen just think about the movies tommy lee jones has been in and all the stuff he's seen Mm -hmm. so it's just literally like this is his this film was like to me his swan song of like you know i'm not doing shit Nope, I'm I'm here. I, I am here so to me sam gerard after everything he went through he he moved to texas and he just wanted to be that Andrew Griffith sheriff. He didn't want to see anything else. He didn't want any problem. He just wanted to drink his coffee, drink up on his dad, do things like that. The so, easy yeah, the easy life. So, and if you remember at the end, uh, well, and I believe it was in U.S. Marshals, the lady tell, tells him, "Take a vacation, Sam." Nope. And then he finally does it. So finally, after all these years, this is retirement home. And even at his retirement home, that's why. I mean, he just gets there. He's been fucking with Wesley Snipes, Harrison Ford. He gets there. He was like. I don't want to push my chips into the middle of the table. I don't know if I like what I see it. I don't understand it. Like, so, I mean, to me, like, he's like, man, fuck, I can't get away from this life. That's my hear me out. Okay. Yes. I like that. Thank you. All right. So my hear me out is that the Coen brothers tell you that Luel, spoiler alert. <laughs> the Coen brothers tell you in the very beginning of the movie that Llewellyn is going to die when he's out there hunting by himself and he... Um, he goes tracking that deer that he shot. Mm-hmm. He comes across the black dog. 
And the fact that that the black dog, I mean, later on you realize where the black dog came from. But in that moment, when you first see it as the audience, it feels so out of place. It feels so out of place that it must mean something. Because it stuck out to me, I was like, what does black dog mean? So I looked it up, and in different cultures, a, a black dog is usually used to represent a bad omen related to death and evil. These are two things that Llewellyn gets himself mixed up with like shortly after this, pretty much by following that black dog to mm-hmm. where it came from. Um, he comes across uh, two trees shortly after that, mm-hmm. which... Everything in this movie is about duality, the coin flip. That's like the theme of the movie. Everything is duality. He always has, there's always choices where one is certain death, one is uh, continue living, I guess. But he goes and he sees, the, he sees two trees, and these two trees are perfectly framed to give you this sense of, like, options. There's option A, option B, the tree of life or the tree of death, hmm. 50-50. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't listen to the warning of the black dog. He chooses death. He literally goes to a tree with a dead man on it mm-hmm. and takes his briefcase. Whenever you take a briefcase from a dead man, that's got you, you got to know that what, what, you know, your demise is going to be right. not unlike this dude's. Right. So as the omen promised, he soon encounters pure evil and eventual death. When he goes to the motel, he stays in room 138. Okay. And if you look at that number, it's 13 and 8, or bad luck infinity. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's like, wait, they minute, just, wait a minute, those numbers uh, synonymize with those words? Well, 13 is like the bad, bad luck. luck. Okay, okay. And then uh, 8 oh, is the infinity. I, I, I like it. I like it. I like uh, it. And then going with duality, Sheriff Tom Bell, uh, he when he gets to the motel, he's also presented with two choices. And again, it frames that shot just like the trees, where you have these two doors and the choice. Mm-hmm. Unlike Llewellyn, Tom Bell made the right choice. He went into the room that didn't have sugar in it. That's ultimately my theory is that if you pay attention in the first five minutes, they, they tell you visually through metaphors that um, Llewellyn is going to die. And guys, you just heard us out, but we'd also like to hear you out. And where we'd like to hear you out at? This, today, tonight. Hey, you should be talking right now. Get in that live chat. Tell us what you want. You can join us every other Thursday in the live chat. Hey, we don't know everything. We just know most things. We need you for the rest. So, hey, let us hear you out. All right. Casting call. In casting call, we get to play the casting casting call or come swap with us, the players. Like, come, come with us and swap these people out. I don't know why you're pushing that so hard. That's what she said. And uh, come swap with us. We uh, take the lead actors of the movie and we get to play casting director and decide who would have been better or more interesting uh, in those roles. I got. I did. I did the three main. I did. I did Tommy Lee Jones, Josh Brolin, and I normally don't RBA. look at. Oh man, you got some good ones. So let me start. You did four. So no, you start because you did uh, four. Because uh, I did, okay, go ahead. Uh, this, I, I need to do mine all three at the same okay, time. Okay, okay, for, for it to play. And I'm looking at it. I, know, I don't like peeking, but I'm, I'm liking what I'm seeing. I'm liking it. I, I'm looking and I'm liking <laughs> All right, I, I only did, uh, I only did, uh, I think I did, no, I only did two because I'll say this is, uh, I think Woody Harrelson was perfectly cast. And I didn't want to see anybody else in that cast. Like, because of the connection you had already made with his dad and everything, I did, out of respect, I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So I only did two, to be honest with you. So I'll start with our Sheriff Bell. For, I, for Sheriff Bell, I, I, I wanted to see Tom Hanks. 
I really want to see a Tom Hanks because it's nothing Tom Hanks. I, in listen, place of Tommy Lee Jones? Yes. Do you think he'd be old enough? That's what I thought. And, I, and I, I wrestled back and forth with that. But I asked myself, listen, Tom, he made me believe he was the little boy in Big. Like Tom, mm. it's nothing. Like I didn't think he could be a captain of a ship. He's been. It's nothing. To, he's not been anything. He's nailed everything he's been. And yeah. granted, and when you say is he old enough, maybe like yeah, they could have stuck some prosthetics on him, made him look old. He would have. He would have. Well, that. If, if they did it for Pacino and De Niro and Pesci and, and the Irishman, it's the it's Benjamin Button yeah, effect. Reverse it, right? Yeah. And plus, and plus, I haven't had this, we haven't said Tom Hanks' name in two fucking seasons. If we don't say that, they're gonna take us off the air. Could you imagine Walter Matthau playing that role? Just. Slowly, actually oh. chasing. Oh wait a minute! Oh, no. What's what's my guy's name? Uh, uh, all in the family. I just thought about it. Archie Bunker. Yeah. There we go. All right. Yeah. I like. Hey, replace. Hey, come swap with me on that one. Archie Bunker. Tom, get out of here. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Thank you. And I right, for uh, Mister. I'm glad we didn't have the same one, but I thought about that name a lot right there. For Mister Anton Chagall. Mm -hmm. We almost had to fuck Tarantino up. Uh, Brian Cranston. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I really it would have been a very different villain, but right, yeah, I, I he could pull only... it off. Don't say he can't because he oh, will. Yeah, he, okay, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything he wouldn't attempt to pull off. There you go. All right, that's, that's your two. That's my two. All right, my three. I did. Uh, I did Tom Bell, Tommy Lee Jones, Llewellyn Moss, Josh Brolin, and Anton Chigurh, Javier Bardem. Uh, I'm looking for the Big Lebowski reunion. You got the Coen brothers writing, directing, so why not have John Goodman play Tom Bell? Jeff Bridges plays Llewellyn Moss, and creepy-ass Steve Buscemi is playing Anton Chigurh. And tell me Steve Buscemi couldn't have killed that role. Like, think of him in Con Air as, as the psycho in Con Air. Those big, those big bulging eyes staring at you. Call it. Yeah, it's pretty smart, it. wasn't it, Paul? No, it wasn't. And now you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my, yeah. I can see that happening, man. That is, uh, wow. Yeah, I thought that would that would and and John Goodman and Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges would have done the cow. I mean, he true grit. He does. He does. Uh, he would have done great as well in Moss and John Goodman as a as a uh, aging sheriff. Yeah, I thought that, and it just would have been so natural. They they work well together with the Coen Brothers. That's my casting call. All right, guys. Uh, just like the last segment, who would you have had? Who would you have swapped with? And so, just let us know. And here are some uh, real life casting calls that were made in real life. Javier Bardem was reluctant when approached by the Coen brothers. He said, I don't drive and I speak bad English and I hate violence. The Coen brothers responded with, that's why we called you. <laughs> Bardem took the role because it was his dream to work with the Coen brothers. His hairstyle was modeled after a brothel patron from a 1979 photo. When Bardem first saw his new haircut, he said, oh no, now I won't get laid for the next two months. Coen brothers responded by happily high-fiving each other, satisfied that Chigurh would look as creepy as they had hoped. Bardem became the first actor to win Best Actor in a supporting role at the Academy Awards, Screen Actors Guild Awards, BAFTA Awards, Golden Globe Awards, and Critics' Choice Awards. Did you also know he was the first Spanish actor to win an Oscar and was also the first Spanish actor to be nominated for an Oscar way back in 2000 before Night Falls? I did not know that. Josh Brolin went all out to secure his role in the film. He called Wynn to the production while working on Grindhouse and asked director Robert Rodriguez to borrow a camera for his audition. He ended up having his audition elaborately shot with a theatrical camera and it was directed by Quentin Tarantino. When the Coens saw the tape, their response was, we love the lighting. 
Two days after getting the part, Brolin broke his shoulder in a motorcycle accident. In an interview with Now Magazine, he recalled thinking, fucking shit, I really want to work with the Coens, as he flew over the car that hit him. Thankfully, his injury did not have any impact on his role in the film because his character gets shot in the shoulder very early on. Hmm. And contrary to how they normally do things, the Coen brothers did not write parts in this film with actors in mind. Stephen Root is actually the only actor in No Country who they have worked with previously. Stephen Root, most known as Milton on Office Space, has pretty much been in every single Coen Brothers movie. I'm sorry, I have to do this. Go ahead. Oh, that is that's the that's that's who he meets with at the end, mm-hmm. towards the end, yeah, before Ellis. Mm-hmm. Damn it, I knew that. Okay, I, the I, dude's I, a chameleon. Yeah, he is, man. God damn, we're gonna need you to move way back. <laughs> Rest in peace. Now, joke's not on you. Mr. Heath Ledger was in talks to play Llewellyn Moss, which eventually went to Josh Brolin. Now, Ledger withdrew to take some time off. He eventually would play a sugar-like psychopath killer, the Joker, in The Dark Knight. His posthumous Oscar win for that film would succeed Javier Bardem's turn as Anton Chigurh. No Country was voted the second best film of 2008 by Empire Magazine, narrowly missing the top spot to The Dark Knight. Garrett Dillahunt, who plays Wendell, auditioned five times for the role of Llewellyn Moss. Dillahunt also starred in 2009's The Road, another film based on a book by Cormac McCarthy. Now, Mark Strong auditioned for the role of Sugar, and he actually made it to the last two spots, which is <laughs> no no simple feat. But, of course, the role did go to Mr. Javier Bardem. Mm-hmm. Tommy Lee Jones was the first actor in the movie to be cast, and Tiffany DuPont auditioned for the role of Carla Jean Moss. Man, that's, that is casting call. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, guys, you better t- tell that wildcat behind the wheel. Chill out. All right. Hey, Pop Quiz Hotshot, what segment is it? Pop Quiz Hotshot. All right, tell them what that is, D. Pop Quiz Hotshot is the top 10 facts about the film that we are covering, that film being No Country for Old Men. So here are the top 10 facts about No Country for Old Men. Number 10, Easter Egg. In the film, Carla Jean Moss watches the crime drama 1953's Flight to Tangier on TV, a film about a mysterious plane carrying $3 million that arrives in tent at Tangier Airport and various interested parties try to grab the cash. See how attention to detail that movie is? Like, our movie is about this, so let's have we let's not have her watching anything. Let's have her watching something that has pretty much the same plot. There you go. Number nine, for reals. In the opening narration, Bell refers to the sheriffs of two other Texas counties named Jim Scarborough and Gaston Boykins, if that is a Texas asp name, who were two real Texas sheriffs at the time the film takes place in. Number eight. Parodies abound. There is no shortage of No Country parodies. SNL did There Will Be Milkshakes for Old Men, Disaster Movie spoofed the Anton Chigurh character as well as The Simpsons in Waverly Hills, 90211 Doe. He is also spoofed in Spanish Movie, Angie Tribeca, 2019's Let's Kill Mom, and South Park, Banned in China. And who could forget the 2008 gay porn parody, Hung Country for Young Men? Whoa. All right, that, that's what he said? All right, and with that being said, body count. 22 unfortunate souls meet their maker in No Country for Old Men, which brings to your point of duality. 11 probably went up, 11 ah, probably went down. Yeah. Nice. Number six, Zoss Floss. After blowing up the car, Shiger enters Mike Zoss' pharmacy. This is a reference to Mike Zoss' drugs and a Minneapolis pharmacy where the Coen brothers spent time in their youth. 
They also named their production company Mike Sauce Productions. Number five, weapon of choice. The weapon that Shiger's character uses does not actually exist. It was created for the film based on a captive bolt pistol, commonly used to stun cows before slaughtering them, which we heard Chef Bill say early in the film. Yes, a sound of a nail gun Damn used it. for the sound effect when he fires the pistol. Number four, keeping up with the Jones. Although top build on posters and marketing, Tommy Lee Jones had the least amount of screen time out of the three main characters. And in April of 2010, he got paid extra for that least amount of screen time when Paramount Pictures was forced to pay him a $15 million bonus when an arbitrator found that the studio's lawyers made an error when drafting Jones' deal to appear in the film. So he was paid $15 million after the fact on a film that had a total budget of $25 million. There's the answer. There's there's more answer coming too. Go for it. I was gonna do number three, but I oh. saw I know I saw it. Okay. I saw the line. I'm like, you know what? Mm, when I see hate, I'm gonna let you go with it. Number three, barely composed. Composer Carter Burrell's score consists of just 16 minutes of music, and that 16 minutes of music is barely heard in the movie. Burrell also composed Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Hail Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs for the Coen Brothers. Uh, outside of the Coen Brothers, he also scored Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows. And uh, I do have a note here that speaking of Blair Witch, give that movie a chance. It catches a whole bunch of shit online, so... Just watch it and enjoy it for the fun that it is and how awesome Jeffrey Donovan is. Just enjoy the ride. Stop comparing it to the first. And that was Blair the Blair Witch. Pitch Project. Number so. three. Or should I say, you want me to say it again? Because he wants you guys really to watch Blair Witch 2. But with, I'll go to yeah. my number two. So number two is where most where a good chunk of the money went. I'm, I'm going to find out with you guys right now. Number two. Bloody hell. An unexpected expense for the film was a large amount of extremely expensive fake blood, no CGI here, costing $800 per gallon. And you're complaining about gas? In the scene where Llewellyn stumbles across the aftermath of a sh shootout as many extras are laying on the ground in pools of blood, it was necessary to use a special blood blend as opposed to the traditional set blood containing shook. Sugar or sugar, sugar to avoid the extras being invaded by bugs and ants. Man, fuck that. Yeah, somebody, now, was, somebody was spinning some bullshit and made a whole bunch of money off of it. Yeah. And it's a special blend, man. Look at that. Look yeah. at that. It repels ants. Number one, just don't put sugar in it. Right. Number one, science backed. In January 2018's Business Insider, an article reported that a group of psychiatrists who studied over 400 films identifying 126, hashtag who is Robert Partridge, <laughs> psychopathic characters, they chose Javier Bordem's Anton Chigurh as the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath. I disagree with that, but hey, you know. I guess no one saw Joaquin Phoenix. With that I mean, being, I guess no one saw. I'm gonna kill someone this Friday. I was in it. Or was I? We still don't know. And guys, that was pop, pop quiz. quiz. Hot shot. All right, guys. It's time now for one, two, three, four, five, six. But seven minutes in heaven. Dave, tell them what that is. Seven minutes in heaven are our favorite scenes in the movie. Hmm. All right, guys. I'm gonna jump right into it. One of my favorite scenes in the movie because you know I never ever number mine. But I'm gonna tell you mine. My first time giving this film a watch was the satisfaction. It's like it almost made me uh, the I call it the cuckold killer 
The first death that we really see uh, Shagur do is, of course, to the officer. And I have questions about that later off screen, about the officer, of course, who arrests him at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. And he goes to the sheriff's office, which I, at this point, surmises to get information. That's why I think he needs information. But we'll talk about that later. But my point is, when he comes, first off, when, when he reaches his hands over to, you know, take the uh, the handcuffs from behind and in front of him, that made me think of the movie Split so much. Or, you know, when the old boy used to be, like, the beast just coming. I was all like, oh, snap. So he comes off, comes back up, then he kills the guy. But what made it one of my favorite scenes was it shows you how much struggle was going on the floor with all the marks and everything. But oh, more yeah. importantly, he doesn't look at him not one time. And right when the guy dies, it's almost like he came. He was just like... And I was just like, oh, shit, he enjoyed that. Like, this this is different. He's not a killer. This is different. So that was one yeah. of my favorite scenes right there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I did really appreciate the attention to detail when they came back to that and they showed the floor and mm -hmm. all the stuff. Like, it was a struggle here. Somebody got fucked up. And everybody that I've seen that scene with, they all are like, oh, my God. Oh, they're, they're like, so shocked by the – it's not even – I've seen way more violent stuff in mm -hmm. other movies, but the way they do it just feels so anticlimactic and real. Like, it's and in a, fairness, look how he's laying on him. I'm not sure he didn't give it to him. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell was happening down there on that floor? My, uh, I, I've got. I know we, we usually do three scenes, but I couldn't. I had. I got five. Okay. So I'll keep up with you. Go ahead. My number five is when Llewellyn tries to get back into America. When that uh, the 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 officer is like looking at him, he's like. Then I ask you again, how you come to be out here with no clothes? And he goes, I got on an overcoat. And the way that the dude looks at him after he says you that. You slacking me? He, no, no. You, are you jacking with me? Oh, no, sir. Don't jack with me. Yes, sir. <laughs> the Coen brothers are so good at taking a simple line and then just doing a different version of it right afterwards. And they're, they're kind of making a theme to the conversation. And it becomes so funny. And then and then right after that, uh, Llewellyn goes into the store and uh, he's like, you get a lot of fellas in here without clothes? And the guy just looks at him, he's like, no, sir. It's unusual. Insane. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, one, one of my favorite, favorite. it, it almost made, it really, it, it was a mixture of uh, Seven Minutes in Heaven and You're Going to Need a Bigger Boat, which will be coming up next. But uh, one of them to me was, it's when he goes into what we'll talk about. I, I call it Satan, Satan's office, if, as you will. They never really describe it, which is fine. He goes in there. He, he uh, Shigur bursts back into the door. He kills who I called the, the Oracle, if you will, the receptionist, the guy that is out there. You know, mm -hmm. the guy. so when he kills him, he, he he's standing there. He does not look back at the other guy. And then he says to him, he um, he said he basically said he gave the Mexican Mexicans a receiver. Uh, we felt that that more people looking for he was like foolish. Pick the one right tool. And that, to me, was so telling of him and his whole character. He feels as if he is a tool of fate and injustice and mother nature and father crime time. He is a tool of fate. So you chew in it. And he felt like, why the fuck would you get a, a, a choppy up? A choppy up. Why would you get a fucking saw and then come out with a fucking tremor? I'm the buzz saw. It's going to happen. Like, yeah. don't send nobody the fuck after me. That's how Woody Harrelson got fucked up. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, my number four is the the hotel scene where Llewellyn finds the transponder. Mm -hmm. So that, I just ain't right. That just had such. I mean, he is so he was badass. Yeah, he because was. Because if I found out, like, oh shit, there it is. Throw that that way. Mm -hmm. Run the other way. Right. That's my first instinct. But he is a different kind of man. 
He's like, I'm gonna set that right there, and that's my bait. I'm going fishing. And he just sits there on the bed. In front of the fucking waits. door. He's not yeah. a smart man. Oh he no, just... he's he's smart. He turns that light off and he looks. Although he uh, if he would have did what he did, if Sugar would have did what he usually does, just <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, he's done. Yeah, he's done that and never like... he still got him with, with the little thing like, oh <laughs> yeah. But uh yeah, the and it's such a they build suspense so well in that scene where he turns the light out, the the way the footsteps walk away and then they come back and then that chase that happens right after that where mm. this is it's pretty much the first time that the two the the villain and the hero face off for mm. the first time. So it's building to that and the way that guy gets shot in the truck mm-hmm. while he's like he's like um I'm not trying to get anybody hurt or something like that. Right. Bam, bam, boom, gone. Now, and he's having to drive the truck. Like, yeah, it was just, it was all very, very well played. Oh, there was a lot going on. Now, mm-hmm. now let me tell you this. Based off of that scene, that that that's a good segue. One of my favorite scenes, I like to call it uh, the blood splatter, splatter effect. You brought up earlier, though, how, it, it to me, this is the one thing, like, they don't spoon feed you anything. But one of the rewarding things for me from watching this film, what I, what I like to call it, the, the trackers. Because uh, uh, Shigeru was a tracker. So was Woody Harrelson's character. And so was Llewellyn. If you notice how he saw the blood splatter at the beginning when he was trying to find the deer and the dog came by, mm-hmm. notice that's that's just him seeing that. Shigur looks at the blood splatter the same way when he's trying to figure out what the fuck that Llewellyn went. He looks at the blood like, oh shit, he's behind me. He jumps away. It just shows you that this is not bullshit how he's, they're finding each other. They're both trackers and that's why he later tells them, I'm coming after you. I was like, oh my, you know, you gotta worry about me. But like, man, and, and, and side note, I'm fanboying out a little bit here. I wanted that trailer he went back to when he hit, hit the gun under there to be that same uh, trailer from uh, um, uh, Kill Bill. Remember it with the guy with the gun and he was out there waiting. I was like, in my mm-hmm. mind, that's that same fucking trailer, even though it's not. But yeah, man, that was one of my, that tracking scene. I don't think enough people talk about that because when we were speaking with Tarantino, he was like, man, how did he know to do this? How did he know? It? I'm like, bro, he's a tracker. This mm-hmm. is what they do. He didn't need that transponder because yeah. Woody Harrelson even tells me, well, I found you in about three hours. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. My number three is the scene where Anton takes out Carson. That I mean, the, the whole scene is shot beautifully. The way it, everything in this movie is is so fantastically anticlimactic the mm-hmm. way it, and it's done right. Remember, I told you when we before we watched it, I was like, "This is how you do anticlimactic. If you you don't just do it for the sake of it, and it just pisses the audience off. When it's done right like this." there's a meaning to the to the anti-climax of it. He comes like a thief in the night. Like, you don't even know that he's shown up and he's about to take your life. And they play... So there's no, like, boom, when he enters the frame. There's, right, right. there's no, like, jump cut or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You just see Woody Harrelson casually walking up the stairs, and then here comes Anton... Like he's an extra in the movie, just casually walking up. The fucked up part about that, Woody Harrelson's walking up the stairs. He's wiping his face. Like <laughs> you're like, no, no, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> let's, I, I thought I thought it was no no country punk for young because he's like, let's go to your room. I'm like, <laughs> and the way the the way that's played out, like Woody Harrelson the whole time, from the second that he senses him behind him, he knows. All right, my my minutes are numbered now. Like uh, he he they he respects what he does so well that he knows he's done. He knows numbers, but apparently he doesn't know uh, technology. This motherfucker says, "Take you to an ATM. There's fourteen grand in it." Well, I hope you got a fourteen thousand dollar the day limit withdrawal. Yeah, the fuck are you talking yeah. about, Woody? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's very true. I he was scared that. shitless, man. I love that this scene has one of the coolest lines to describe uh, Anton, where uh, Carson says, you're crazy. You mean the nature of this conversation? I mean the nature of you. 
100% correct. Now, now we would be remiss if we, I know we both had this scene. I'm pretty sure it's one of favorite. Like to me, I really put it on here and I, I think I put that it was, to me, it was, if, if no one ever sees No Country for Old Men, if you only got about seven minutes in your life, just watch that convenience store scene, man. That's I mean, my I, number two. Okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll I'll just let you go and then I'll just chip in because I know we both talked. I know I have it on Oh, that, that, no, that, that's what I'm saying. That, that, that's that, that's, that, I, that, that is one of my top ten scenes of film, suspense films of all time. It instantly jumped in there because it's like so much light, so much dark, and you see it at first. He's not going to, if you notice, he doesn't just fuck with nobodies. If you're just a normal person, he's not going to fuck with you, but again, he doesn't like to be tracked. The moment that motherfucker said, y'all get in the rain up there? Where? Well, I saw this place came in from Dallas. Well, this isn't necessarily up yours. Where I'm from. Friendo. Yeah, and it's such a great scene because, I mean, the the, the writing is fantastic mm. because they take so little words and mm. do have so much power behind them, which is little things like, I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you're dead. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. Like, mm -hmm. are you gonna, are you going to Preach me a poem, or are you going to kill me? And this is what fucked me up. I, I'm, I, I'm pretty sure. Like, don't get me wrong. I, listen, the Coen Brothers are great, but in my mind, they just kept this cut because like, he had been eating pistachios for probably like three minutes, and he finally was like, <clears throat> but they put it into the line that when the guy said, when he said, uh, he, he, when he found out the guy you married into, you married into the wealth. That's what you did. No, you married. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that's what you want to say, that's no, that's what happened. Well, what time are you close? I mean, dark. That's not a time. Are you really asking me that right now? Like he is the guy should have just shot himself. He is breaking up. You're not a man. You're not a man's man. Fate. And that's when he it, it, they're talking and they're going back. He finally he's like, call it, man. Just fucking call. And you notice when like he yeah, yeah, when he walked in the he has another encounter with uh Llewellyn's secretary or somebody like somebody that knows where Llewellyn's whereabouts should be. Mm -hmm. And he when he encounters her. She's just like giving it to him straight. Like, did you not hear me? I told you I don't know. She's mocking him. I can't him. tell you. And he looks at her like, almost like he res he respected her more than that attendant. He's like, all right, she's at least got a pair of balls on her, unlike this other dude. Because it's such an early scene. It does such a great job at setting up Anton's, like, his methodical nature. He's mm -hmm. not... That scene lets you know this isn't just like a psychopath who's going on a bloodbath. He is... He's very there's there's calculated, and calculated. yeah and he oper he operates by like a certain set of principles he plays by Woody Harrelson it. says that this man's beyond money he you almost say he operates with a certain you know and just mm -hmm. in a quick scene none of that is said few words are spoken between him and the gas station attendant it's entertaining as fuck it's gripping mm -hmm. the beats in it where they are are perfect mm -hmm. so you get this perfectly entertaining scene. And you also learn like so much about the character in that in those short few minutes. It's yeah, it's such a great scene to watch. One of my other favorite scenes is kind of to me. It's and I'm not going to lie to you. It's, I, the first time I saw this, at a certain point, I almost was starting to ask myself because when you, I, I don't know if you ever thought about this connection in the film itself. To, I'm mean, just the film connecting in on itself was at a certain point as I, when I first saw this, I was like, wait a minute, is 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 sugar? Fucking uh, like uh, Tommy Ed Bell reincarnated or something like that because that's just start thing. He tells a story about his dad. His dad wasn't there. He's seen so much. Then of course, mm -hmm. so I say one of my favorite scenes was when he was like, "Oh look at that, the milk sweating." So yeah, it goes yeah. back to my theory about Sam Gerard. Yeah, he goes and drinks, drinks that, that shit. shit. Like, like the fuck's wrong with you, dude? Oh shit, that's aggravating. I mean, anyway, yeah. But he's as we talked about, they him and Sugar both sit down in that same seat, almost for him to get a. A, a, a view of how the killer sees it. And I'm just like, wait a minute, they're trying to tell us like they, they're not so different. 
Yeah, that's exactly what it's. A, it's again the duality. Yeah. He's the flip side of Shigure. Mm-hmm. My number one is when Anton finds Carla Jean. That is such a powerful scene when she says, like, she stands up to him. She says, "I won't call it." Call it. The coin don't have no say. It's just you. I love that it that it doesn't show him kill her, but if you pay attention to Anton, it's obvious that he did kill her because he doesn't like getting blood on him. Mm-hmm. He when he walks out of the house, he checks his shoes. There's no reason for him to check his shoes unless there was. But, but that's why that was the most violent death, and we never saw it. He stomped her ass out. He didn't have a gun with him. He well, stomped. even if he didn't, even if he shot her and blood got on the floor, he wanted to make sure he didn't track through any. But the of shoes, it. yeah, he's but, all, yeah, he's but, done that. But the fact that. You see him kill all of these like side characters that don't really mean anything to the story. But mm. as far as the uh, as far as Carla Jean and even Llewellyn, they both die off screen, which is so cool to me. I just thought about something. Correct me if I'm wrong. Does he kill any female on screen? Aren't they all men? Pretty sure. No country for old men, not women. Ew. Ew. <laughs> but, yeah, just the anticlimactic nature of this movie from when you see. Llewellyn dead after the fact and then Carla Jean you don't see her die and then and then he just gets into a car accident driving away from there and just kind of saunters away and I think that he's he (laughs) um, I think he died I think I think he went because if you think about it all three everybody in the movie is going to die off screen eventually Llewellyn we know we find him dead Mm -hmm. Carla Jean we can determine that she's dead based on what uh, he does when he comes out of her house Tommy Lee Jones character you know he's going he's knocking at death's door because he's old so he's and then Shiger gets in a car accident he looks real rough so we don't see any of the main characters die on screen, so I, I think he's walking away to die. Mm. Now, one of my my last one is not my number one because I don't do them in order. But with that being said, one of my uh, favorite scenes was, of course, again Woody Harrelson when we first meet Woody, and he shows you how smart he is. He says, "Well, you know, when I walked up here, th- th- there's a there's a floor missing. When I counted all the, the and to me, they they never say what it is, but to me, like it's, it, that place is either hell or it's another floor to it. It's like I don't. They, it's almost like the, the cartel of cartels in that building, and they're they're sending people out." of these things and that just to me it's like a, a whole nother world of a story we knew nothing about we'll look into it those were seven minutes in heaven and right now you should still be oh look at those little comments in the live chat oh you guys you love us you really do all right what were your favorite scenes in the movie drop them in there all right post haste post hadius papers corpus all that stuff hey guys hey it's time for a baby shark, 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 shark. Open up and use your jaw. It's time for you're gonna need a bigger boat. But by the way, speaking of that, did you know that was an improvised line? Wasn't even written in a fucking film. Really? Yep. You definitely fact check that shit. I, I I will believe. I'll look it up later. But that's awesome. I'll be looking up some later too. Listen, guys, your favorite films or your bad, worst films, they all have something in common, which are lines that you really love. And we're not talking about Blow unless we're talking about Blow the film. I don't nickel and dime. Hey, Pee Wee Herman reference. Ah, let's get into it, guys. You're going to need a bigger boat. Hey, hey, this one guy told me, I told him, I told him, you're going to hell. He said, be there in about 15 minutes. <laughs> Shit. I, I, got, I got way more than five. Man. And I so do I. Um, we're just going to go back and forth. We're spitballing. Which okay. is crazy because not a lot is said in this movie. But it is. But when they say something, they, they say make it. sure it means something. Mm-hmm. Either it means something or it's just really, really witty. Mm-hmm. I'll start with really witty. 
Llewellyn, one of the first things he says to somebody is uh, Carla Jean. He goes, uh, where, they're, where they're sitting in the uh, trailer. Keep running that mouth here, so I'm going to take you in the back and screw you. <laughs> hey, that's a man's man in that world. Love you, ladies. Speaking of that same I scene. I'm going to try that on Angela. Just, one just don't, do don't do it tonight. Don't do it tonight. Wait to Cinco de Mayo. And with that being said, uh, th- th- that same scene, I don't even want to know where you've been all day. That'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Bitch. Badass. <laughs> if only. You try that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> we'll stay out till 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to know where you've been. You might as well film the next season over here because that's how long you'll be here. Yeah. I, she's I want to know where you've been. What business is it of yours? Where I'm from. Friendo. That... It, that was his one time in the film where that guy bothered him. That, he he wanted to kill that guy so bad. That reminds me of Tom Cruise in uh, with, and not Leverage uh, with Jamie Fox. Help me out here. Uh, collateral. Collateral. He if he he only wants to kill the people he's going to kill. He's a skilled mm-hmm. killer. But if you fucking piss him off, he'll do you. It's like me and you having a conversation, and I'm just like, man, you might fucking pull that shit out. That's yeah. basically what he said. They're talking like, call it, man. What's well, funny it. is like with convenient and when in a convenience store scene, you would expect the person working in the convenience store to be the one annoyed with the customer, not the other way around. He's he's wandered into his establishment. Have I done something to bother you? And all those fucking smiley faces <laughs> in the background. All right, like that. Hey, <clears throat> I ask you this. If the rule you follow led you to this, of what use was the rule? Uh, Sheriff Tom Bell, the uh, uh, Wendell um, uh, Garrett Dillahunt, he says uh, it's a mess. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? And when uh, what uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Tom Bell says, if it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. That was just a sad man. Tommy Lee Jones had it out. I like that. Hey, can I ask you a question? Yeah. What's the most you ever lost? Coin Don't put that in your pocket. Yeah, yeah. Well, where would you like me to put it? <laughs> Ew. Carla Jean says to Llewellyn, I got a bad feeling, Llewellyn. And Llewellyn goes, Well, I got a good one, so that ought to even out. <laughs> Dude, they 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 were the antithesis of go, of being able to go back and forth here. Uh everything they said could either be really poetic or the narration of a Chevy a Chevy truck commercial. I, I got this. I'm pretty sure I'm getting the line wrong and forgive me because when we inter- when we interviewed her, when we interview her later, she's gonna correct me. But she says her line says, and I got the cancers. I got the cancer. She pre-visioned it. <laughs> she did, she pre-visioned uh I pre-visioned it. You know how many people I know in San Antonio? That's how many. <laughs> I like her. Okay, when uh, when Llewellyn's in the uh, in like the tool shop or whatever, uh, buying materials to mm-hmm. to hide the money, when the dude asks him, he's like, "Tent poles? You already have a tent? And you just want poles?" He's like, "Yes, sir." If you tell me the tent, I can look it up the model number and get you the right poles. And then Llewellyn goes, uh, "Never mind. I want a tent." What kind of tent? Kind with most poles. Let me know if anybody else checks in tonight, and by anybody, I mean any swinging dude. Badass cowboy. Badass dialogue. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Speaking of badass cowboy, yeah, I'm gonna bring you something. All right. Decided to make you a special project of mine. You ain't gonna have to come look for me at all. <laughs> it hangs up the files. I put that over what's his nuts in Taken. Uh, oh, you done lost your fucking mind. No, no. Listen, that, that was a better. I'm coming for you. No, I'm gonna make I, you my special no. project. You're not gonna have to come looking for me at all. I will find you. <laughs> Good luck. That man listened to that recorder 90 times. We're not going to do that today. Uh, when, hey, I I know what more beer leads to. I know what more beer leads to. Bear leads to more bear. She wanted that man to bend over. 
I mean, that's the... Um, uh, yeah, 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 right. Which, I, that was I her in the like pool. She got, she's the one that got him fucked up in that hotel. No, sir, his mom got him fucked up. You go to El Paso? I know it, where are you staying? Oh. It happened right before, I thought that at first too, hey, because remember, they did, they did that bitch in, she was in the pool sitting uh, face down. Ass up, that's the way I like. <laughs> Uh, what's his name <laughs> says to uh, uh, Sheriff Tom Bell says that sounds like they died at, or no Tom Bell says sounds like they died of natural causes and they go natural how natural to the line of work that was in that was one of Tarantino's favorite line he definitely he definitely did that um, I'm, I think that though I mean there are a lot of powerful lines in there but to me those were the most powerful lines for me I see you have a few more I got two more okay. I saved the best for last so the 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 accountant when uh, when Anton walks into uh, Milton's place like uh are you gonna shoot me that depends do you see me and i love that that should have been one of mine and that actually goes back to my my point of how when people say he's not a ghost fuck that shit but i will say this he wants to be one so bad he's trying mm -hmm. to do everything it's like he's on a mission for death like hey man just do these things for me you'll be one of us yeah. and so that's probably oh and that cartoon is probably when he's what he was accepted all you gotta do is stump out this bitch and like what's the last thing a blood's bone no a little boy's shirt i'll give you my shirt he got it and that was it <laughs> just fuck out of here uh, my, my favorite line, it was actually said by today's guest, Barry Corbin, who plays Ellis. Ellis. When he says to uh, Sheriff Tom Bell, he says, you can't stop what's coming. Ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Because you guess, guess what, guys? If there's one thing you got to be in this life, it's humble. Take that from the king, and I'm the lord. All right, those were our favorite lines in the movie. Put your favorite lines in the comments. Or on the counter. Or just scream them into the ether as we move on to scene stealers. Guys, all right. This is, uh, you know what, before we jump into it, you know what scene stealers are. Clearly you saw I'm going to kill someone this Friday. It was between me and Thomas Sedell, Mr. Royal. Uh, I let him win because we're duality. But this, let's go ahead and do a recap of the scene stealers from season two. Dave, take us away. Thank you. Throw the board down there. We did Vanilla Sky, episode one. That Mrs. Was... Cameron Diaz, call me, baby. We did Tropic Thunder, episode two. That was... Lincoln Osiris. Hey, I'm just a guy playing the guy playing the guy. Episode three was Django Unchained. Sir Christoph Waltz. Coming to America's... His name does not even need to be mentioned. Eddie Murphy. I'm a donkey! <laughs> Lean on me. The timeless one. The ancient one. Motherfucker Morgan Freeman. Doctor Strange. We Psychedelics were consumed during that episode. Miss Tilda Swinton. And Death to Smoochie. Oh, man. The, the late, great. He's not even going in my mind. Number one in your program, number 12 in your hearts. Robin Williams. That brings us to No Country for Old Men. We have some, hey, honorable mentions. Not even honorable mentions here. We. Uh, my point is, is this is probably one of the hardest ones to do here. And I'll say, I'll go ahead and just jump right into it. Honorable mention to two people, Tommy Lee Jones and Woody Harrelson. And I know, I, I, I just, I wanted to, Tommy Lee Jones did something I had never seen before. And to me, it's just like, he, I've never seen him play such a sad person in my life. And all that dark, all that cold. I was just like, damn, man, it's like, you talking about all these other people died. He was dead inside. And you heard him say this. Let me tell you why. It showed you why he was so sad. He had been killing and doing all this stuff his whole life. And he was like, I just knew God was going to show up. And, and like, he was just going to ride off into the sunset. He, he felt like there was no God. So you're giving it to honorable mention to Tommy Lee Jones and Woody Harrelson? That is correct. 
so man, who are you giving your? Oh, I got I got honorable mentions too, but I can't wait to see who your uh, scene stealer is between Javier okay. Bourdain and okay. Josh Brolin. Okay, my honorable mention, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, of course, because he was a natural. He he, I think he might be the best actor at being able to look unfazed, no matter what situation he's in, and it doesn't come off as bad acting. Like he, like if most people did what he did, it would be portrayed as like they don't know how to show emotion on camera. But when he does it, he he takes lack of emotion to like a superior level of acting. Even in the fugitive, when that train crash, like the whole world's going to look for this fugitive. All right, I want everybody in every in-house doghouse out there. Like, that's not another day in the fucking week. Same like this, whether he is having a quiet conversation with his wife or he's driving into a shootout happening on the street. He's always just like, well, I might have some coffee later. We'll see. Hey, that works. (laughs) My my other honorable mention was Josh Brolin because... Mm. I have to give it to him because he succeeds in like pretty much being the character, being the actor that carries the movie. Mm-hmm. But he didn't get my scene stealer because there just wasn't anything like spectacular about his performance in this. Well, I think we're trending in the same direction here. So my scene stealer, you actually brought out the reason earlier why this person is my scene stealer. For me, it's going to be Mr. Anton Sugar, also known as Javier Martin. Bardeen, Bardeen. Oh, yeah. I've been trying that a whole episode, guys. The we, re- we let our lips get so numb to say his name so we don't have to enunciate anything too particularly. Speak that for yourself, there, lover boy. I'm not confident about it at all. <laughs> Javier Bardem. No, and with that being said, the reason why I gave it to him, you brought it up earlier and I found that out before you, you mentioned it, which was when he was offered the role, role he didn't want to do it because he said, I don't, I don't speak very good English, I cannot drive, and I don't like violence. So, Everything they, except the driving, everything other than that, he became this iconic character when you get spoofed so many times. And like you said, he didn't even, he probably had the less dialogue out of all the lead characters. And to me, acting isn't always about the words, especially in this Coen Brothers film. There's barely any goddamn soundtrack, as you mentioned, which that means there's no soul to the film, but there is soul. Mm-hmm. And my point is the, the emotions he emoted, the beats, the even when, even when he's trying to mock someone, he he doesn't mock anyone the whole film until that. That's why I say he was more pissed off at that, that convenience store. He's like, friend Yeah. since you're so fucking friendly, fucking friend, nice motherfucker. You know what? I'm going to go out of my way to fuck you up today. Heads, call it, bitch. He needs someone. I don't know what we're calling. I don't got it. Oh, it's for everything. Like, how did this just happen? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I give it to him. Javier, for me, you. Once again, we it is it's unanimous. I think it's been like this pretty much. Uh, Eddie Mur- Eddie Murphy, Morgan Freeman, Tilda Swinton, Robin Williams, and now Javier Bardem. We are we have been unanimous on these, oh. and uh, and like you said, with his um, like English being his second language, um, to know that watching him do these lines, he he speaks with such a like a razor sharp articulation of everything he's saying. And it's either heads or tails. And you have to say, call it. And he reminds me of the Joker, uh, the Dark Knight Joker, Heath Ledger's Joker, the Joker. um, The way he's, he makes you hang on his every word when he's talking. Like when the Joker hit the screen, it was like, you were just compelled by everything he's saying. A little gamble here. Yeah. He won't have enough money to to buy his his grandma's. So great, and he also he he reminds me of the Terminator. Okay, like, hold you, on. Okay, you, okay. You oh. can't escape him. He's all, and it. he. You never see him run. You never see him like frantically chasing. He's like 
Go ahead. I will catch up eventually. Right. And I will terminate you. You won't be back. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he he pulled off the quiet, menacing villain perfectly. So, so Javier, it is unanimous. The Academy said it first, but this is the, I know you're going to put this TTFT trophy up above everything. Here you are, sir. You are a scene stealer for No Country for Old Men. Put right down there in the comments down there what your favorite actors were in No Country for Old Men. Was it DJ Qualls? Was it Javier? Was it Tommy Lee Jones? Fucking was not DJ Qualls. What do I get in this fucking garage? All right. It is time for Cast Crew or You. Guys, this week we got a special surprise for you here. Listen, Dave, tell them who we got. We have Beth Grant, who played Carla Jean's mother in the film. I got the cancers! And Barry Corbin, who plays Ellis, the character pretty much sums up the entire movie for you. You can't stop what's coming. You think it's all about you? That's vanity. All right, let's get into those interviews. Okay, all right, ladies and gentlemen, today we have a special treat for you. David, tell them who we have. Our guest is an actress who you have most definitely seen at least a time or two, working for over four decades with more than 230 films on her resume. Beth Grant has starred in classic films and television series such as Rain Man, Flatliners, Dragnet, Child's Play 2, The Golden Girls, Coach, Murder, She Wrote, Speed, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, A Time to Kill, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, The X-Files, Donnie Darko, and Southland Tales, Malcolm in the Middle, Matchstick Men, Six Feet Under, Little Miss Sunshine, My Name is Earl, Extract, Crazy Heart, King of the Hill, Rango, Modern Family, Dexter, Justified, Grey's Anatomy, The Office, American Gods, The Mindy Project, Netflix's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and of course, No Country for Old Men, and a few dozen handfuls more on top of that, and also starring in over 30 plays from Los Angeles to New York. Plus, she has somehow found time to dabble in writing and directing. Beth Grant, you are obviously extremely busy, so thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Wow, you must really be out of breath. That was fantastic. <laughs> COVID free. Now, Beth, thank, again, thank you so much, Ms. Grant, for coming on with us today. Again, we always uh, want to say thank you in these times that we live in to anyone that would be more than uh, gracious enough to grace our set. So, again, thank you. Now, let me jump right into it. In 2007, you pre-visioned it. You played Carla Jean's mother in the Coen Brothers classic, No Country for Old Men. Three years ago, I pre-visioned it. You were absolutely perfect at bringing the special brand of Coen Brothers character to life with all the particular nuances. What was it like working with them? Oh, well, it was just heaven. I mean, I couldn't believe it happened. I had loved them for so long. And as soon as I read the script, well, I knew and I knew the book, you know, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is it. This is going to be their masterpiece. And that's saying something because right, everything right. they've done it practically right. is a masterpiece. And um I had always liked Miller's Crossing had, was my favorite prior to this, but I really felt it. And I, I, I remember I was sick the day I went in for the audition and I was lying down in the waiting room before I was called in, but I knew what to do with her. She was a bit of my grandmother and I just knew who she was. I can't explain it. And so they got, got along great with them, but then I didn't hear for two months. And then I got a call on a, Thursday and they wanted me to come in on Saturday. They wanted to, you know, uh, uh, photograph me and film me and I couldn't go. I had a commitment with my daughter to go to, um, a, a, something that 
G Gina Davis does with, uh, I think it's called Girls, Girls, Girls or something. It's some kind of uh, sports camp and raising money for, you know, girls to be in sports and things. And they had the soccer team that had won the gold medal was going to be there, a celebrity golf tournament, whatever. And Mary was a goalie. She's six feet tall and she was five foot nine when she was 12. And so it meant so much to her. She had invited her friend. They were coming to pick. I couldn't, couldn't, no, I couldn't cancel. I could not do it. So it broke my heart. And I said, what am I going to do? My husband said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to film it and we'll get it to them. And this was before now everybody does that, but they didn't used to do that. You didn't send in VHS, especially to the Cohen brothers. Um, but he recorded it on our little VHS. Our daughter read my line, the off camera lines. And he took that thing, bless his heart, and hand delivered it to their office and put it on their desk. He didn't want anybody touching it. He wanted to make sure they got it. And then I got the offer on Monday. So it started with, you know, I knew that it was a charm situation because for that to happen. And it was just fabulous. They were wonderful. They were kind, friendly. They knew what they wanted. They, the, they're the only directors I've ever worked with who gave you uh, with your sides in the morning, you got the shot list and the storyboard. And so I knew exactly what they were shooting when they were shooting it. And I had never thought that that would be particularly helpful, but it was, it was great. And um, just loved them. We finished early. I, I only shot three days, something like that. But, you know, happy crew when you get when you're working an eight or 10 hour day, you got a happy crew. So everybody was very happy, very, very much in a good mood. And it was just wonderful. I will say that Mary Voorhees, their uh, costume designer, who's done a lot of their movies is really the one that came up with, I had never conceived that, you know, white curly hair and the uh, big glasses and she had a beanie uh, bra filled with beans so I had saggy boobs all that kind of stuff sorry um, one moment please uh, there's a uh, there's a there's a knock at the door is gonna check on that real quick I apologize hello who's at the door <laughs> they're persistent they, they tried like five minutes ago and we tried to ignore it but then they uh they decided to try again uh, maybe it's important that's uh I saw that um Josh Brolin uh, had ended up sending in his audition tape as well yeah. for that. And that, and that had Quentin Tarantino direct his yeah. audition. Yeah, sure. mine wasn't quite Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And funnily enough, he was best friends with the star of Jericho, that series I did. He was from Concord, North Carolina. Ulrich, uh, Skeet Ulrich. Oh, oh Ulrich. yeah, yeah. Okay. Was best friends with Josh and had told him about the part. And then Josh got it. And so I always thought, gosh, that was generous of him to do. You know, that's the way it should be. Yeah. I've done it and it's been done for me, but it's pretty rare, you know. Well, it was on IMDb, so I'm not sure how true the end of the story was, but I, I thought it was funny that he put all this, uh, Brolin put all this work into his audition tape. Quentin Tarantino directed it, shot it with the cinema camera, uh, sends it into him and, and their only reply, according to IMDb, was, uh, we, we like the lighting. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Which, it see, it's one of those things that feels true, because it seems like the Co something the Coen brothers would do, because they're just very dry. 
But uh, yeah, I thought that was humorous. Well, I'm sure that they weren't used to getting that kind of lighting on a submission oh, yeah. tape like that. <laughs> they thought, my God, this is like a feature. Oh, that's funny. Josh was um, so cute at the premiere. He came over and he said, I've been wanting to meet you. You got me killed. Because <laughs> our scene was only on the phone. So we had, hadn't actually worked together. Yeah. I think the uh, there's not much connecting between the characters and that I think the um, your daughter in the movie is the only character that actually interacts with each of the main characters. It, she's like the... Oh. the, the the eye of the pyramid, I guess. Well, you know, I, I've, I've seen that movie 15 times and I didn't realize that. That is cool. I can't wait to tell my husband. We <laughs> love that movie. We love it. We love it. it. And it's not because of me. They did it. It's they not my it. uh, it's not my go to Coen Brothers movie when I want to watch a Coen Brothers movie. But it's definitely, I would say, the best Coen Brothers movie. The, Which one the, is your go to? My go to is probably it's. Depending on how I'm feeling, it's either The Big Lebowski or Burn After Reading. They don't make a bad movie. Like, everything that they've done has been at least a nine. What was the one that got a little poo-pooed? Ladies in Lavender or something with Tom Hanks? Oh, uh, the, the Lady Killers. The Lady Killers, that's right. Yeah. It was pretty fun. Yeah, it was. And I mean, it was Tom Hanks. Like, I've never seen him before. And you could tell he was yeah. having so much fun with that character. You got to go at a movie like that with the right attitude. That's that, you know, what we bring to it makes such a difference. Yeah. I mean, their dialogue. Well, and that's actually my, my next question. Like, like the Lady Killers, the, the dialogue in all their movies, the dialogues have such a specific rhythm to it. They're almost, it's almost like lyrics to a song. I mean, it's like you were made for a Coen Brothers movie when you're sitting in the back seat delivering those lines. They're, you're just, you are in tune with their rhythm perfectly. And I'm curious if there is any room for improvisation on their films or is it like to the T? Well, I did it to the T and they asked me if I wanted to do anything else, but I didn't have anything else to do. It's, I mean, it's just so weird. Cause like, as I say, I improvised on Rain Man and frequently in features you do improvise, but they are, they're so good. It was, it was to the T. I mean, I, I can't speak for the rest of the, you know, only was in my work, but it was just perfect. So why mess with it? And I said, oh, I wish I had something else, but I don't. So we went home at four o'clock. <laughs> you know? I can't improve upon perfection. This is it. This is what you, this is, this mean, what you pay just, for. They had it right. And if they liked it, it was good enough for me. Right. Yeah. Now you, you've talked about how much you prepare and how you, you know, try to find that the, the reason behind these roles. Let me ask you this. There's always the, the fine line of comedy and drama with their work. Now, as an actress tasked with bringing these emotions to life, how do you approach a role like this? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, uh, once again, a bigot, really. Um, I I just, because I had this strong image, I, I felt like I had met this woman. Now, I was a little bit afraid of the big white wig. Right. And the glad, I thought, oh, my God, is it too much? And I got in that trailer. But then I saw Javier's, and I was like, Javier's, <laughs> ah, well, I'm not going to be more direct. Um but I, I just knew I wanted to keep her very real. And I, I did a thing my mother always did. You've probably seen Southern women do it, of keeping my pocketbook in my lap. Mm -hmm. 
and ha my mother would cling to her pocketbook wherever she was. One time when I first moved out to California, we rented a limousine for her and, you know, we weren't rich, but we just wanted to make her feel good. She and my daddy and uh, picked him up and daddy's trying to help the driver put the luggage in the car. And I said, daddy, let him do it. Let him do it. That's his job. You know, then we get in the car and we've got champagne and hors d'oeuvres or whatever for her and dad, I don't even drink, but for them. And uh, she got that pocketbook right in her lap. The whole, I said, mama, you can put the pocketbook down. You know, she's just holding on to that. Bike. I'm fine. I'm fine. And you know, it just tickled me. So I've just grown up around these people. So it wasn't exactly my grandmother. It wasn't exactly any one person. Uh, the high pitched voice came from my grandmother, I think. Um, but I just knew that she needed to be real and she was real to me. So you start with that and then with um, Mary Voorhees costumes and then just looking at myself in the mirror, it was honestly one of the more fun roles because of that, because it was, there's a, a, an old ad for a streetcar named Desire with Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. And in the ad, it says, rip from the fabric of life. And I've used that line ever since, because I think that's hilarious. And I think this one for me was ripped from the fabric of my life. Uh, I just knew what to do. Sometimes you don't know. There was a thing Barry Sonnenfeld directed me in called Maximum Bob, the Elmore Leonard novel. And uh, I knew what to do with her. And I was auditioning and I thought, oh my God, I have to go all the way with this character. So I did the whole hairdo piled up on top of my head and these black glasses and old Oxfords and a pitiful dress. I mean, I just knew what she looked like, but I looked in the mirror and I thought, oh my God, is this too much to go to an audition, you know? But I felt it in my heart. It wasn't intellectual. It came from inside. And I went down Sunset Strip, which is so fancy, you know, and I stopped at a gas station to get gas. And I said, we'll see how people react to me. If people start laughing or if somebody says, oh, where are you going? They, none of them did. They all were very polite. And I thought, okay, I got her. I got her. And, and I did get her and it was great. So yeah, they, they come from um, all different places, sometimes from a wig, a hairdo, a dress, sometimes just organically inside of me, you know, doesn't mean I get the part though. And it doesn't mean it's that I'm always good. <laughs> yeah. But I try hard. <laughs> How, how tight was the direction on on No Country? Like, like for instance, when you, uh, you know, how many people I know in El Paso? That's how many. Is that in the script or is that like, I feel the need to throw up my hand here? You know, I don't remember. I think it was in the script. I don't know. Yeah, it must have been because the line was, that's how many. So it must have been in the script. Okay. You know. Perhaps I did it with greater finesse than one would imagine. I got the answer. <laughs> now, if you don't quite remember that, let me ask you this: No matter whether it was fun when, or you know, just your your personal memory, was there your favorite? Do you have a favorite memory from that set? Whether it was someone you worked with off screen, on screen, what was your favorite memory from that set? All well, I loved everybody. What an honor. I will say my favorite memory, and I probably lost money because of it, but, you know, between shots, it occurred to me that I could record the telephone conversation with Josh. I could do my side of it. 
And I thought that would be better than in a studio because I was in character, I was in costume. I felt I would be able to give them more of -hmm. what they wanted. And so they said, oh, what a great idea. And so they got the sound guy. We went into a room at the motel room and- No, she'll be all right. She'll be all right? And we recorded it in like two takes or something. And uh, I did think it was great. When I saw the movie, I thought, oh man, that worked. And I don't know that I would have been as good in a cold studio, you know, it's different. And yeah. so, but then I thought, oh hell, I could have gotten another, you know, payday there. Maybe <laughs> our session, eight hours, we need you. Yeah, <laughs> but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And the the night of the premiere, oh my God, it was so thrilling. and. Watching it, I mean, it was the most quiet I've ever heard any audience ever during a movie. I mean, you could hear a pin drop the whole damn movie. And then when it was over, you know, with that ending, you know, you don't even, aren't even sure. It was so quiet. There was no applause. Beat, beat, beat. And then finally, whoa, big ovation, you know. And it was like, oh, phew, because you, know? <laughs> you never know. But yeah. I did think because they were being so incredibly quiet that people were with it all the way. I was. And um, and then at the I remember at the premiere, uh, Tony Bill, the, the great director and producer's wife, Helen Bartlett, asked me, she said, do you think that Tommy Lee Jones's character, do you think the sheriff finds God? And I said, gosh, I'm going to have to see it again. I kind of, th- I hadn't thought of that. Mm-hmm. But you think about that going on with that far, that dream, you know, that he had about his father and stuff. Ooh, very moving. So, yeah, that, that movie just begs for interpretation. It feels like a parable more than you're more than you're watching something take place in reality. It feels like everything is a metaphor. And um, people, people who say it's too violent. I mean, I, I don't like. Um, exploitative exploitative movies where it's violence just for violence personally but you know um this violence didn't bother me at all i mean i've seen it all those times and my sister-in-law was very upset after the movie and i've heard other people say that and i'm like gosh i just didn't feel that way i really didn't it was all to purpose he was the devil and Tommy Lee Jones represented God and they're battling over the soul of every man, Josh Brolin. To me, that's what I got out of it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's a solid theory. I would take that. Before we, before we go on from uh, No Country for Old Men, is there anything else that you think fans of the film would like to know? Gosh, I don't know why that's such a loaded question for me. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> well, I, sweet. I'll tell you something sweet about Javier. I didn't work with him. However, they had the Broadcast Critics Awards and we were at the table with him and we, I had been shooting that day, in fact, on a movie and I barely made it. I was still in my costume and I had a little French twist and I was playing a Midwestern woman, had a little pocketbook and little high heels and this little imitation Chanel suit. And anyway, I was late. I I walked the carpet and then we got, we were right there with him and, but we were late and they were giving away the awards and we had to pause for a commercial break to take our seats. So they had seat fillers, you know how they do. And so we went down together through the audience uh, and sat at this table and bonded. You know, we were friends by the time we got there. 
And uh, he's just a sweetie pie. He really is. I know it sounds like I'm saying that about everybody. I don't feel that way about everybody. I promise you that I, I, I did. And after he got his award and he sat back down, he looks at my husband. He says, was that okay? Was that all right? You think, did they understand my English? And I thought, good grief. Here's this extraordinary actor from a theatrical family in Spain. He's done all this incredible work. And he's so vulnerable and worried about did they understand his English and what's what he said okay and it just endeared him to me so I'll tell you that story that's it uh let me ask you this okay so we're winding up we're, we're winding down here but with so much experience yourself on top of all the experienced filmmakers that you've shared the screen with what is the best piece of advice you can give to expiring aspiring actors well, I would say slow and steady wins the race. I would say uh, go to class, go to class, go to class, get in plays, do theater, and build yourself a support group in these classes in theater and invite everybody to see it. Don't be too proud to do student films. I mean, I did a student film. I was trying to think the last one I did was probably three years ago. Mm. And um, I, I don't do them all the time. But if if I am available and somebody gets a script to me and I think, you know, I like the director, I'll do, uh, you know, low budget movies. And, you know, this invitation I just got was, um, I'm sure they're not paying much. They, But it's not about that. You know, it's about it's about the role and the story and the director. And so don't be a snob. Don't let your ego. Remember, ego is not your amigo. <laughs> and, and, and pray to be of service because that's the goal. The goal is what are artists anyway? We're human beings who are telling our personal stories through other people's mouths. We're channeling our stories through these other people and we learn about ourselves and we grow as human beings and hopefully i mean that's the goal whether you're picasso or whether you're the cohen brothers or me or whoever i think that's the goal it's not about getting rich and famous which is of course why we all go into it <laughs> you know I, I mean not all actors but <laughs> A lot of us actors, that we're dreaming big, you know, and I wanted to be loved. I just wanted everybody to love me. And it was a way I could get my mother's attention. She loved it when I, we called it show, showing off or showing out. Sometimes they'd say, look at her showing out. And um, mama loved it. It made her laugh. It made her smile. My uncle Billy loved it. I wanted them to love me. And so mm -hmm. that's really was the beginning of it. And I heard Meryl Streep say that too, that you know, she, she said, some of us, we all hopefully get some attention when we sing a little song at Sunday school or whatever. Um, but some of us like that applause a little too much. You know, it's like, whoa, I want that for the rest of my life. So I would say over time, it needs to change so that it is about the work and the craft and learning. But you, it, it's so thrilling. I mean, it's, it's, the ultimate between action and cut, or if you're stepping on the stage, once you step on that stage and you're in that unknown territory, anything can happen. Anything can happen between action and cut. Anything can happen on that stage that's lightning in a bottle. And so it brings you closer to your higher power. It, whatever your definition of your higher, I don't care if it's equals MC squared, the energy of the universe, even Einstein said the universe is friendly. And the people that have been splitting atoms say, I don't know 
what it's called when we get to that point where we split that atom, but there's some energy there. So that's what we're after is, is to come close to that, to touch it, you know, and to feel it and to let it pass through us. So that's a lot. I didn't keep it simple, did I? <laughs> that's, 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 that's wonderful. I like it. Yeah, no, there's something. I would say so slow and steady wins the race is the biggest. <laughs> and ego know. is not your amigo. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. No, when, when a group of adults get together and agree on, and like play, play pretend on an agreed premise, how is that any different than the reality we live in anyway? So to get to do that on stage or in front of a camera where at least the premise is controlled and there's a a meaning that we've all agreed on. I mean, yeah, it's got, it's gotta be thrilling and to, to really not take that for granted if you're in the position to be able to get to live these extraordinary lives within the big life. Um, the most recent role that uh, that you've played that has been released is uh, Sheriff Lund in the new Nicolas Cage film. Right back to the beginning of where we started here. As everything begins and ends with Nicolas Cage. Always. Willie's Wonderland. <laughs> Willie! Willie needs to eat. And I'm going to feed him. And busy as always, we see that you have a few projects in various stages of production to be released in the near future. Can you tell the audience what to keep an eye out for? Well, I'm very excited about Goliath that I did with my old friend, Billy Bob Thornton, and he and I started together and um, I was just thrilled to do it. And we were actually on a show called The Judge and I'm playing The Judge. And at one point I was supposed to do the movie, The Judge with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, but unfortunately I wasn't available because of the Mindy Project. And so I, I just have a feeling that Billy thought of me for this because, you know, it's like coming full circle at this time of life. And mm -hmm. I love doing that. So that coming out soon, I would think, don't know. It wrapped in January. So I hope we hear soon. What do I have in the can? Well, right now on Amazon Prime video. Ooh, poltergeist behind you, poltergeist. Oh, that was behind <laughs> us. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Hey, right. hey, maybe stuff we need to be watching out for. With lights, camera, action. We're down the camera, action. Anything can happen between action and cut. Anything can happen. Have you not been listening? It's, it's okay. What are you doing? Now? It's, it's, you're trying to see what it was? Oh, okay. It's the light. It's the light. You're, you're a little afraid there. Yeah, yeah. See what happened when Nicholas Cage, he heard us talking about him. <laughs> yeah. came all the way here to mess with <laughs> Willis Wonderland. Uh, well, anyway, this movie I have on Amazon Prime now is called Words on Bathroom Walls, and I love it. I just think it's great. Charlie Plummer plays a high school student who is a schizophrenic, and it was released in theaters, but, you know, it's the pandemic. So anyway, I'm very happy that people can see it now. There's another one called Wander Darkly that's been, it was also released in theaters, um, Sienna Miller, Diego Luna. I, I don't know when it's coming to a streaming service, but I'm sure it will be. It did very well at Sundance and so on. Amazing. That's it for now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working. I have one big movie I would love to tell you about, but I am signed to a confidentiality oh, agreement. Don't okay. worry. We respect Some, that. Something tells me we'll know it when we see it. You will. This is what <laughs> you mean. Remember, hey, you got to do us a favor. If we review that in season three, you come back and talk to us about that. 
Deal? All right. Absolutely. Oh, see, there we go. We're booking. We are booking. All right. So listen, Any this is not really a last question, more, but say any parting, parting words that you would like to share with our audience or your audience before you say goodbye? Well, I would like to say to your audience that I hope they realize how lucky they are to have such wonderful people to bring an intimate interview. We never met before today, but you're so open and loving and kind and it's amazing. I mean, I knew from the email that you sent or Facebook thing that you sent, I, I said, oh, this is a good person. I'm sorry it didn't work out before, but I'm glad we got it. I hope your audience realizes that because sometimes our, you know, we take people for granted. And I'm not saying that you are, I'm not saying you're a victim or anything like that, but I would like to celebrate you honestly and say that this has been lovely and fun and friendly. And I've talked about so many different things. I'm sorry I took so much time, but no, you no, guys no. are great. I think you're great. I really awesome. do. And I, I wish like you good luck with your filmmaking career. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully one day we'll be saying, hey, we need her to come act with us and so you know act for well, us. jackson and uh you know jacksonville so i've worked in uh, jacksonville, jacksonville i'm just saying <laughs> listen i i appreciate it you'll always be the original ms in my mind meryl street not the other one all right listen uh, listen uh, beth we you. <laughs> thank you no thank you so much for taking time out of your day tell your husband we apologize we will never keep him or you waiting again good luck with you guys business meeting and peace prosper and live long. Live long. Ah, uh, there. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter taught me how to do that. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Lots Thank of love you. to you. Thank you. You too. Thank All the you. best. Bye. All right. Our next guest is an actor with a legacy firmly secured throughout iconic staples of film and television. We're talking General Berenger in War Games, Uncle Bob in Urban Cowboy. He has shared the screen with Clint Eastwood in Any Which Way You Can. I was introduced to him as Maurice on Northern Exposure, which he received an Emmy nomination for. Mm -hmm. One Tree Hill fans know him as the coach of the Tree Hill Ravens. Better Call Saul fans know him as Everett Acker. There's also Stir Crazy, MASH, Dallas, Modern Family, The Ranch on Netflix, of course, No Country for Old Men. That's vanity. And literally over 200 more roles spanning 45 busy years as an actor. Mr. Barry Corbin, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about No Country for Old Men for a minute. You play Ellis in the film. There's a, a quote on your on your IMDb page that reads, "I you, you said, I think for the last 15, 20 years or so, Hollywood has underestimated the appeal of the Western. So how would you compare uh, No Country to classic films in the Western genre? Uh, well, that was an interesting uh, thing that happened. I was... Uh, I was sitting at home and my manager called me. I'd heard about this No Country for Old Men. And I, I didn't really know, know anything about it, except my son auditioned for it about six months before uh, they called me. And uh, so I knew uh, basically that there was a uh, thing called that. And I said, well, I'm an old man and it takes place in Texas. So why don't they call me, I wonder? Uh, well, they, they never did. and. Uh, Finally, just about uh, a month before I was supposed to, uh, you know, they were supposed to start shooting. They, uh, my manager called and said, said, you've got an offer uh, to do a, one scene in this movie. 
I don't know if you want to do it or not. It's only one scene, but it is with Tommy Lee Jones and it, and the Cohen brothers are directing it and they've written it. It's based on the Cormac McCarthy novel. Well, I hadn't read the novel and I was, I had to go to Kansas to do a short movie before I did that. And so I didn't have a chance to read the novel. I was, I was in Kansas riding a horse all for, it is a little short movie called Trail End. And it had basically me and one, me and a horse. That is basically the whole movie. We were riding across Kansas and I had one, like two scenes with people and the rest of it is just me and the horse. Mm. So I was uh, obviously pretty busy during that time. Didn't have a chance to read much, but uh, I did read the script. When they, when they sent me the script, I said, well, let me see the script. And I started reading it. I kept wondering, well, where is this Ellis character? You know, it's, I read and read, and there's all this, uh, you know, shooting people with uh, with one of these uh, bolt guns that they they kill cattle with in the, in the slaughterhouses, various things. And uh, I thought, well, this is bloody. I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah. And then I got I got to that scene. And I read it and I went, I said, whoa, I went back and I read it again. And I called my manager up and I said, man, this is, this scene is the movie. Sure, I'll do it, of course. <laughs> right. Because it explains the whole movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did, you know, but I, I had to go to, uh, go to uh, New Mexico. They were doing pre-production in New Mexico and I had to go there and, uh, and do a rehearsal what they called a rehearsal with Tommy Lee and which our rehearsal consisted of going in with the, with the Cohen brothers and, uh, and just doing the scene. Mm -hmm. So that's what we did. We went in and we ran through the scene and they said, okay, that's fine. Let's go to lunch. And, uh, coincidentally, I think it's Joel told me that, uh, my son who'd come in audition for him five or six months before. They said it was between him and the other guy that uh, that got the part, and they and they needed somebody who was uh, who was not dark and didn't have dark hair. So they cast this blonde kid that played the part. He gets strangled first by Javier. You know, he came in and got chains around his neck, strangling. So uh, that's the part my son was up for, and he and he said it it was just a matter of, of look. And Tommy Lee said, well, don't tell him that because he'll, he'll dye his hair. <laughs> well, no, I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> when I got there, uh, we did that, and then, then we went away. And then I, I went and did that movie in Kansas and then came back. And uh, I had to, they had to sleep, they had to shoot my movie in the day after that I wrapped in the other one. So they had to, charter a plane, fly me down from Dighton, Kansas to Marfa, Texas, which neither place has an airport, you know? <laughs> and so they chartered a plane, flew me down there. They had a big, uh, uh, pretty hefty pilot. And he, uh, I wanted to ask him when he had his last physical, but I was afraid that I might insult him. <laughs> I, I was in there by myself with him. That was it. And uh, we made it. And uh, the next day I got up and we did, went through the scene, went through it. 
And uh, an interesting thing about it was there were rattlesnakes up under that house. And uh, these women came in with all these cats. And I said, don't let these cats out of here. You never see them again. Uh, as, as Tommy Lee walks in the door, first, first thing he did, he walks in the door. You see a cat run out beside him, run out the door. Never saw that cat again. <laughs> <laughs> that pretty primitive deal. You were speaking about the Coen Brothers. Were you familiar with their work prior to this? And if so, what was your favorite Coen Brothers film? Oh, sure. I was familiar with them. I, uh, well, I liked uh, Old Brother, Where Art Thou was one of them. Oh, the Clooney. Yeah, Clooney. Mm -hmm. liked, uh, I liked Blood Simple when I first saw that. That's the first one I saw of theirs. And uh, I, I've liked all their work pretty much, you know. And I, I, when I went in, I was expecting to be a, there'd be, you know, a lot of notes and things. But we, we'd do a scene, and then uh, they'd look at each other, and one of them would go, another one would go. All right, let's do it again. <laughs> so we do it again. And that's the only direction I got. Or Tommy got. Just do it again. Got in it and and uh, we had a break for lunch finally. And Tommy said, Well, how, what do you think about these guys? I said, I don't know. They haven't talked to me. What do you think of them? <laughs> this is the first time Tommy had worked with them too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, Well, I don't know. Uh, and I said, Well, let's just keep going, see how we how we do. <laughs> and we uh, finished that day and we had to come back and do a couple of pickup scenes the next morning and I and I left went out of town but I asked uh, I think it is uh, I think it's Ethan I, maybe it's Joel I don't remember which one but I said uh, do you guys ever give anybody directions <laughs> and he said one of the smartest things the director's ever said to me he said if we cast it right we don't have to yeah, yeah. so that was uh I thought I took that as a compliment, but, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, then I, I saw Tommy right after his release and he said, uh, he said, well, we were good. <laughs> yeah, we were good. <laughs> about it. Tommy, that's a, that's a good Tommy Lee Jones impression right there. Um, now with the Coen brothers, you've worked with a lot of great writers and directors over the years, Coen brothers included. What do you think sets a great filmmaker apart from the rest? Uh, they listen. They listen and they and they they pick up things that are that are going on, going on in in the actor's head, and you don't talk about it a whole lot. You you listen to you. I, I listen to them and they listen to me, and it's a collaboration, but it's almost a collaboration without language it's a it's a uh, an esp thing you know you have you either connect or you don't connect yeah, yeah. i've uh, I'm, I'm i'm lucky in that i can connect with most people there's some people that i just can't connect with there was one director that i was working with and he we were doing a scene and he said I it just started into the scene he said cut 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 no 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 wait don't make that face. And I said, what? He said, don't make that face. And I said, well, this, this is the face you hired. 
He said, what do you mean don't make that face? He said, well, the face you just made, don't make that face. I said, well, do you think that I stand there at, when I'm shaving in the morning and, and practice faces to make? I don't, I, I tell me to think something different, but think something else. And he said, okay, think something else. <laughs> All right, roll it. So I did the same thing, and he said, brilliant. Well, he's just looking for something to say, and he confused the hell out of me. So, I, you know, <laughs> I was going to say this next question should probably have went towards the director and not Tommy Lee Jones. But speaking of Tommy Lee, I want to know about that director. But speaking of Tommy Lee Jones, now the responses range from great to terrible when co-stars are asked about their experience with Tommy Lee Jones. Where would your personal experience land within within that spectrum? We we've been friends for a long time. I've known Tommy since uh, oh probably the early eighties. You know, we did a picture together called uh, Stranger on My Land, mm -hmm. television picture. It's Tommy Lee. Played, uh, ben Johnson played his father. And I played a marshal who was having to throw him off part of their land. And I didn't like what I had to do, but I was doing it anyway. Yeah. And uh, so I've known Tommy for, uh, I don't know, how long is that? That's uh, about 40 years, I guess. And yeah. so we're, we're friends and uh, know each other pretty well. He he's uh, he's a little cranky, but he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I figured. I figured that it's just people didn't really appreciate that kind of personality that has is just straightforward and. Yeah, well, he's he is straightforward. He's uh, he's not quite as straightforward as Wilfred Brimley was, but he is he comes close. <laughs> I think Sam Gerard is the character he played that probably mostly mimics who he is in real life. I, I think that's really Tommy Lee Jones, Sam, Sam Gerard. Um, no Country for Old Men, to me, it feels more like a parable than a straightforward story. What do you think the message is in the movie? That we all meet our match somewhere along the line. You've got to either accept it or change your direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's the basis of it. I, I really, uh, I really don't uh, have any more uh, about it than that because I, like I said, I only worked on it one day. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. well, now, being that one day, that long day, because if they're going to get you for one day, remember they said John said he got me one day. John Candy would he come all day? All right, is there a, is there a particular memory that stands out from the one day that you were on set, whether it be with another actor or a set member, crew member, any particular memory? Like I said, the place where we were shooting was very primitive. I don't know how they found it. It was out there in the middle of the desert outside of Marfa. And uh, you had to go off the main road and go up a dirt road. It was, I wouldn't be able to find it again, but uh, it, was, uh, it was exactly right for what we were supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing, but later on, I worked with John Badham, who directed, uh, he directed war games. And... Uh, he said, you know, I had to wait until the credits to see who played uh, uh, Ellis. He said, I didn't recognize you. He said, you look like something that just grew up in the middle of the dirt out there <laughs> in the desert. I, I, said, I said, well, the thing of it was they had me, uh, they had it uh, in, the, in the book, I guess, and in the in the script that I had one eye that was white that had didn't, didn't have any any uh, pupil in it. 
and they talked about doing that. I said, no, no, we don't need to do that. We can just, I can just play the, the guy, you know? I, mm -hmm. So I just, uh, I, I didn't have any makeup. Got a little, got a little dirt, you know, that's it. Yeah. Didn't have any makeup at all. So you got to make that face. The same face you had, you got to make that face and they were fine with it. Don't make a face. <laughs> Before we before we move on, um, is there anything else that you'd like to share about the No Country for Old Men production? Like I, I know, again, you said you were there for a day, but I went in for a rehearsal. Uh, I was uh, I ran into Josh Brolin, and uh, I had known Josh from the days of, uh, of this this little little uh, series called uh, the the Young Writers. He played. Uh, Bill Hickok in that and we'd known each other sort of for that time so I, I ran into him in the bar and we proceeded to sit there and talk Tommy Lee came in for a little bit he had a couple of drinks with us and then Javier came in and he had a couple of drinks with us so it, uh, if, if I'd known Javier if I'd, if I'd seen this movie before I met him I wouldn't have had a drink with him I'd have, I'd have skinned back to my room but uh He's a very nice fella. And so I had, uh, uh, I met a bunch of these people and the lady that played his wife, played Josh's wife in the movie, has a very heavy Scottish brogue in real life. And I thought she did a Texas accent pretty well. I thought she, she didn't, she fooled me. <laughs> but in real life, she just, she sounded like a woman right out of, right out of the Highlands. Nice. Amazing. I want to see you and Tommy Lee Jones play the leads in a in a comedy about like two retired vets that uh, start like a neighborhood watch and take it very seriously. seriously. I think that would be fantastic. Get off my sidewalk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And I, let me ask you this. And of course, we're, we're, we're almost done here. Uh, and if you don't mind, just, I, I have to ask you this. This is not the question I was going to ask, but I have to ask because I'm pretty sure you can follow up. Can you do a follow up 16 and 17? And I'll, I'll ask this question real quick. Sure. Um, could you please tell me your your top three Westerns of all time? And please tell me Tombstone is in there somewhere. Tombstone? Yeah, Tombstone yes. would be in the top five, I guess. Okay. Well, one of them would be uh, uh, My Darling Clementine. Mm -hmm. And it's not because it was factually correct, because it wasn't. I mean, uh, Doc Holliday didn't look anything like Victor Mature, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was just it was uh, John Ford did such a good job with it, and uh, and uh, Walter Brennan was such a such an evil old man Clanton that I I just I I just love that picture. Mm -hmm. uh, love the Searchers. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is the story basically of, uh, of Cynthia Ann Parker and uh, Red River mm. have to be in there somewhere, except for the end of it. I, I, I like the whole movie, but when they got to the end of it, they just had to figure out a way to end it without people, everybody killing each other. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Well, Shane would be one. I, I knew it. Negotiator Shane. I knew it. No, Sam Jackson tells him, Shane, go ahead. And, uh, Tombstone, of course. Okay, that's five. Yeah, yeah. there you go. That's solid. Hey, that's very solid. I love that. I thought we were going to get a little Three Amigos in there, but I knew better. <laughs> I like Three Amigos. I like uh, I liked that, uh, that, that movie where 
where they fart all the way through it. That Mel Brooks movie. Blazing Blazing Saddles? Blazing Saddles, yeah. Yeah, that's it. There you go. Good pull. Gene Wilder. Good pull, man. Good pull. With so much experience under your belt, uh, we have uh, our our show is is geared not just to people that love film, but aspiring filmmakers. We try to include information in there for them. What is the best piece of advice you could offer to aspiring actors? The odds uh, now, I mean, they've always been long odds that you're not going to be successful, really. but now the odds are even even stacked against you more. Mm-hmm. So if you really want to be an actor, you ought to find something else you can do to make some money and then do your acting in the community theater or in the, in the little small venue thing. And then maybe that'd be uh, something you'd do when you retire. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it's, uh, the odds are stacked against you on this business. Mm-hmm. If if you're determined to do it, if this is the only thing you can do that'll make you happy, then then the Lord bless you, and I'm all for you. But I don't, is, I wouldn't have any advice. I don't, I don't know. It, 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 everybody else has got, everybody's got a different story. Mm-hmm. That's some of the realest advice that we've heard. Yeah, my, I mean, my uh, deal was I went to New York first and worked in theater for about twenty years before I. Uh, ever stepped in front of a camera. And uh, I think that was uh, Walter Matthau once said, film acting is retirement acting. You pull out all the old tricks you learned in summer stock and use that. Yeah, because you went to college for theater production, right? But you didn't, your first like role in a film wasn't until you were like late 30s, right? I was uh, 30, I turned 39 during uh, Urban Cowboy, yeah. I was going to ask you this now, before we let you go, are there any any projects that you can talk about that are in the works that we should keep an eye eye out for? Well, the one that I'm... uh... That I'm going to start next uh, next month. I, I haven't had clearance to talk about it yet. I okay. can tell you being directed by uh, Martin Scorsese. Ew. Nice. Just tighten it up. We'll wait. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't really have. That's the beautiful thing about Martin Scorsese is you don't really have to say much more than that to uh, promote the project. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know the man really, but uh, I know he talks real fast. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of like a friend of mine who's in his seventies. He said, he said I'm not trying to, uh, I'm tr- I'm not trying to build a resume. I'm trying to milk one. Yeah. <laughs> that you you've given us at least seven bumper stickers right during this interview. I'm telling that, you, that need to be printed. Yes. <laughs> before we before we go, is there? Uh, this is the last question. Do you have any parting words that you'd like to leave the audience with? Well. Y'all just keep watching because I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. I'm 80 years old, but I'm going to keep going till I, till I can't remember my lines or hit my marks. Nice. I love it. Hey, man, this is, I'm, I'm not just saying this. This has been one of the best interviews ever. We don't even, I don't even feel like I'm interviewing an actor. I'm, I'm interviewing a human being who really just sees life the way it should be seen. So it's, this has been an honor for me. I, I appreciate it. Well, we're just having a conversation. Let's have another one pretty soon. All right. Hey, yeah, you said it. And, and, <laughs> after that Scorsese picture drops, we'll be in touch. All right. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as, soon as you hear what it is, then let me know, and then we'll talk about it.
Yes, okay. sir. Yes, that that's good. a plan. Barry, thank you so much for taking the time out yes. of your day. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Mr. Corbin. Uh, it was an honor talking to you. Well, it's my pleasure. It's uh, it's uh, been been a fun been a fun hour. There you go, yeah. in and out. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hey, cowboy up. All right, I'm take a ride. Yes, sir. I saved that. I saved that. Have a good night. All right. Good night. All right, guys. Thank you. Hey, listen. Thank you so much to our esteemed guests. Without you guys, we would still do the show, but it's much better when people actually know that you love us and we love you. Now, Dave, what's our next segment? Room for improvement. And I don't want to be blasphemous here because guess what? I don't want all the internet trolls and everybody coming. I understand this is one of every award from here to Beijing. To I already disagree with everything you're about to say. Thank say you now. so much. I know you do, but it's okay because you've been pulling this shit since season one. So with that being said, guys, I only have don't one. Don't fucking tell me you're going to change. You're going to be pissed off with the ending. Is this our show? Who who go, who go is it? You said that I've been doing this since season one. My problem is always the ending. Mm, funny. All right. With that being said, guys, for me, I I definitely would have changed the ending. And the reason why I say that is this is because of the fact that listen, there's actually two things I would have changed. Number one, uh, and and and, and, and I only want it in my ears. <laughs> that's not what she said. With that being said, there's two things I would have changed. And the reason why I say this is this is I'm okay with not spoon feeding actors and the audience and should i say i'm okay with not the audience being spoon fed but with that being said once you with 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 llewellyn you've made me care about this character for maybe 60 to 75 85 minutes how dare you fucking have his 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 scene his death off scene i'm not saying you got to give me everything and push it in my face what i'm telling you is that we deserved a better death well, not even you don't have to change how he fucking died. At least let me see the shit. We've been with this guy. We've been rocking with him all fucking moving. I, I get it. It's all artistic and shit. Fuck that. I'm not saying that that's a bad style. I'm saying that's not my style. My preference is you don't have to give me everything. But damn it. He was there for an hour and a half. At least give us two seconds from fucking die. I didn't even know if that was him. I thought a Mexican took the shirt off and put it on him. I couldn't even really tell it was Llewellyn until the to almost the end. But with that being said, OK, I'll get off my. Soapbox. The reason why I would have changed the ending, I wouldn't necessarily say change. I, you know, fuck it, I will. I hate that they did this with Sopranos. I hate when you do this to the audience. Don't ask me to watch this film and be so smart and so initiative. This so, uh, we're just gonna be do it different. We're not gonna give you everything. Well, give me something. Because guess what? I guarantee you, ninety five percent of the fucking audience who saw the film did. They were like, wait a minute. So your dad wasn't there, and then, then what? And don't, does it force you to go rewatch it? Yes, I've seen this film three times in the last fucking week. With that, he, me and Tarantino have set up at nights watching stuff over and over and over. He falls asleep. Are you still going at it? Yes, because I'm looking for some reason why. I'm not saying it was lazy. I know they meant to do it, bro. But I would have changed the ending, and that's all I'm saying. I would at least either change or add it on to the ending to at least give the audience, like, they've been with you on this ride, man. Don't do them like this, because, yes, me and you will do our research. There are others that were, most people, they're not going to do it. Like, man, fuck it, it was okay with the ending. Fuck those people. Okay. They can go watch She's All That and have a blast. I love the ending of The Sopranos. I bet you would. I think it was perfect. This is the way to do anti-climax. This is the way to do it. How to not bust a nut. I don't have anything in my in my what I what I would change because no room for improvement. Mm. Because if you are a filmmaker, I am aspiring. Watch this movie and take note because the lighting, the cinematography, the editing, the sound design, the the color grading, the acting. 
the 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 brave choices that they took to to go outside of the norm with uh with pacing and storytelling and reveals the climax everything is done 10 out of 10 <clears throat> it is absolutely perfect I, I i i i'll get into the uh the what i thought about the ending but i thought i i wholeheartedly disagree with you i appreciate the fact that you that you can at least appreciate that they did it their way they yeah they didn't just do it because they didn't think it couldn't think of an ending oh no 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 no, i would never disrespect them like that i know that no they did this on purpose and guess what but i will say this like we out of every we do our research Mm -hmm. on every movie that we've researched have you have you ever seen a movie with so much uh, we've got it up right now. <laughs> like, have you ever seen a movie with so much content out there with people dissecting the shit out of it? Yeah, only one, it? only like, one, The Matrix. Okay, so No Country for Old Men and The Matrix. Well, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it has people there, so it's out there for. There are people that really appreciate that, and if and it's just not even The Matrix ends people. with a phone call. I know you're out there now, and I'm coming. They gave us something, man. But I, listen, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I disagreed with it. But I, I, they, they were courageous to do that. All right. Well, All right. I'm anxious to get into fucks given because I would like to. Should I go first or should you? I'm gonna run it right right into this because uh, because I, I I'm I'm on a roll now with with I've got a few notes here with what I love about this movie. Um and scene five fucks because it's perfect. <laughs> This movie is amazing without showing off at all. It's not. It's never flashy, um, not in its cinematography or in how they choose to roll out the story. They are confident in the fact that just the meat of the story is good enough to make it an amazing movie. And they've done so well in setting up the characters and setting up the, uh, the plot and what's at stake that they don't have to go all out in some big climax to make sure you come at the end of it. You're coming the whole time. So you leave satisfied. The whole thing is a very steady ride that you can take in and it's just perfectly paced from beginning to end. The, uh, the sound, the sound design again was so ballsy. It used no over the top theatrical sound effects. It was extremely limited in its score and the soundtrack. The use of the wide shots and the long takes with minimal cuts. Again, that they're uh, they're confident in in what they're doing, and even with the like the wide shots, no sound effects, no jump cuts, it still manages to build this like um, this suspense. It does. The uh, the lighting angles, performances, everything is. What about so- the ambiguity? I love the ambigu- ambiguity. That's one of my favorite parts of it because. Life is life is full of ambiguity. Life is full of like questions unanswered and anticlimactic endings. And if you think it like the way everything plays out in this movie, it's all very hyper realistic. Uh, like, like, like not realistic in the way most movies are. Like we're gonna be true to reality. This was like so realistic that it felt like almost voyeuristic at times. The way they lit it, again, the long shots, the angles that they chose to use, the way the performances aren't like people are performing. It's almost like they don't know the cameras are there. And even with all that, it succeeds in being entertaining. And if, yeah, you saw my fucking notes, didn't you? Okay. Ambiguity. 
Yes. <laughs> I, I didn't even know because I forgot what was there. I didn't get to that part yet. Ambiguity. Llewellyn, the hero of the film, <laughs> dies off screen with little explanation. As oh, to, man, fuck as that. But that's why I told you I didn't like it, though. But that's I why I'm telling you why I do. This is one of my reasons. Before you said what you said tonight, I had that written down as one of the main reasons. One of the closers for why I love this Coffee's movie. Coffee's for closers. I want you to get mine back. <laughs> Hear me out. I know it's not that section, but the fact that the hero of the movie dies off screen, like the whole movie, we've been talking about his lines, the scenes where the one, the lines and the scenes we love the most are when he's like this badass hero and the badass hero dies. We don't even see it. We just find his corpse after the fact. And it could have just been something that happened in like happenstance. That to me is a more tragic and impactful death. Then had we seen him go out in a blaze, like shoot out the way we would expect to having watched movies with a hero and a villain our whole life. That's exactly what we would expect. They did the opposite. They just gave us his corpse. And that to me, like even the shot, like you, you didn't like the way he could have been a Mexican already. Exactly. He could have been anybody because he is anybody. He's just another human being and we all just live and die. And there's no like rhyme or reason for it most of the time not and that and this was and they and they did that and they didn't just do it and it's like it, it wasn't done effectively the way the whole movie plays out it worked with it and it's just it was perfect like i said my favorite coen brothers movie it is amazing all right i'm gonna make it short and sweet just like one of those guns you use that has air that knocks the hole out of a door i give this movie four fucks the reason i give this movie four fucks is because i was for years people told me i one thing i don't like is people telling me about movies who aren't qualified if i come off as a douche or an asshole here check my resume google me bitch and then you won't feel that way but i don't like when a bunch of people tell me how great something is and for and, and, and in fairness I was not let down like this was they were right. This is a great fucking film. But with that being said, the reason why I still give I'm giving it a four out of five because of the fact that I do give them credit for making me wonder what could have happened. And one line I do agree with you on is that, yes, people can die at any given time. And sometimes unless you're directly involved with it, no one gives a fuck. If that's the message they were trying to give me right there. I fucks with it, but I still give it four because I will have to agree certain scenes, all, all the actors weren't as powerful as others. And what I mean by that is this, is that you know, everybody can't be Tommy Lee Jones. But my point is this, is that the pacing could have been just a little bit better for me. And again, I didn't need everything you gave me. Some scenes where you're not, you know, I didn't need the Tarantino effect. I didn't need the long drawn out everything, you know, but with that being said, I'm only saying the pacing acting great cinematography all that stuff is great so i give it four out of five but i will say this this is a classic film they took chances that most directors would never fucking chase i would have rather this ending than the blaze of glory and i don't want to see any more fucking blaze of glory john mcclain jumping outside holly i don't want to see any of that shit all right so so we just have we just we, we just, just disagree on how taste we yeah, different that, tastes right true. right right every, tomato tomato every script that i've given you or a lot of scripts i've given you, you've always had to talk me down on the ending like then just give them something something Shit, breadcrumbs. That the next time I'm giving them nothing. All right, so you guess I what you love got. nothing. It's right. so good. Yeah, I, I, your way makes sense. What you're, there's valid points to what you're saying. It's I think it give me a just, little something. It's just a difference in taste. Like I, I, I want nothing at all. Sometimes I love. I think it. Cat I Williams says it's best. Stuff. He's never made our show, but Cat Williams said it best. It's like a girl saying, "Hey, I want to fuck you." Never. Like, so wait a minute. I'm fuckable. I look good. She wants to come, but we're never going to do it. On Rotten Tomatoes, it holds a 93% average with critics. 
and an 86% average audience score. Our film critic friend uh, Richard Probst over at The Independent Critic said, The greatest films are such a force of life and death, love and hate, that once the closing credits begin to roll, the film's cinematic life has just begun. That's exactly what I was saying. They set it up so perfectly that when those credits roll, you don't feel like the story's over. You feel like they set up, like, now you figure out where it goes from here. I, I agree, because that was I'm Going to Kill Someone This Friday to the T. I agree. Uh, on the flip side of that, Jonathan Romney of Independent on Sunday said, I can't help feeling the film is ultimately hollow, which, well, that, Jonathan Romney, your fucking head is hollow. I can't help feeling that. So you're saying he's Kevin Bacon? Hollow man. Hello, connections, guys. <laughs> Uh, I thought you meant Kevin Spacey, Swallow Man. All right, coming attractions, coming attractions. All right, guys, we've seen Coming to America. We've done Coming to America, and Coming to You Soon is the last two episodes of Season 2 of TTFT. Say that three times fast, you're on coke. All right, with that being said, guys, Coming Attractions, we got two movies left. Dave, you name the one. Actually, don't name the one unless you're going to put a zero next to it. Uh, David Wayne's The Ten. Uh, hilarious comedy on May 20th and we'll be wrapping up the season with Truffle Shuffle! Truffle Shuffle! <sighs> on June 3rd for the 10 we will be joined by special guest Cedric Sanders what are you and doing? Andrea Rosen. What are you doing? You said we're going to be wrapping the season. Well, I did the Truffle Shuffle I thought you were going to go into the goon. Did you go back to the 10 after I just showed my nipples? Yeah. No. Yeah, I can't help what you just did. Okay. Uh... Cinematographer Nick McLean will be joining us for the finale with the Goonies. And we also have a very special bonus episode coming up, Mr. Yes. Royal. We will be doing a special bonus episode called That's the Effing Theater. It stars the very talented theater students from Douglas Anderson here in Jacksonville, Florida, who dealt with so many things racially, socially, injustice. And these kids were really brave for what they did. And we, we're going to bring you guys something very special. So, again, as we tell you, TTFT, we're not just here to show you things. We're here to teach you things. A goodbye, goodbye, a goodbye, goodbye, a goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.